Hello, everyone. Welcome once again to the Exodus seminar. We're in chapter 12 in the, at the end of the sequence of plagues, in the midst of the 10th plague. I'll just introduce everybody briefly and we'll start with Exodus 12, 14, which is a description of the memorial, memorializing of Passover. On my right is Jonathan Pajot, Stephen Blackwood, Dennis Prager, Greg Hurwitz, James Orr, and Guinness Oz. Thank you, gentlemen, for being here. And I'll read 12.14, and I believe Jonathan Pajot is going to open for us. And this day shall be unto you for a memorial, and ye shall keep it a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You shall keep it a feast by an ordinance forever. I mean, I think what I wanted to say about that is really... You know, we talked about memory a little bit in the early episodes, this idea that memory is a connection in distance is a good way to understand it. And so as you have an origin, and this Passover is, the, say, the origin of a new beginning for the people of Israel, and, and there's this little even giving of the law, which will be repeated in a bigger stance when they get to the, to the mountain. Um, and so as you move forward from origin, the manner in which you stay connected to that which bound you together is memory. That sounds obvious. It's, it sounds actually like a boring thing to say. But that memory has to be enacted. It's not just a mental exercise, you know, and that's why it's enacted. It has to be ritualized. It has to be ritualized. That's why it's enacted in feasts. That's why it's enacted in celebration. That's why you have the 4th of July. That's why you have these, these practices that make you remember important aspects of your history not just just to remember it, but to, to remember why we even exist together. Yeah, well, it might right? be. You why know, are we something and not nothing? Why is the United States a country and not just a bunch of different things that exist on the, on the land? Yeah, well, and you don't know how much of that is because everybody celebrates Thanksgiving together, for That's example, right. the United States. Well, you know, there are technically, there are multiple forms of memory, right? There's semantic memory, and it's basically propositional. And so usually when people say, I remember something because we're so propositional and rational, we think we mean you remember something you can state, but there's there's a narrative memory that's a separate system from that, and then there's a procedural memory, which is just action. So procedural memory is how you know how to ride a bike. Yeah. You can't say it, but you know it. It's built into your body, and we don't know how crucial it is to how we even regard a memory as important in relationship to those three of those three. Because it might be that the memories that we are likely to regard as important are actually the ones that we act out, not only the ones that we can say. That's, that's and, precisely what I, I was going to say, exactly the same thing about procedural memory. That's so funny because I was thinking like when people have a stroke, a lot of times they lose their language but can still ride a bike, mm -hmm. right? So you encode it down, right? You were talking about some of the possessions, how they move from the prefrontal cortex to the lizard brain, right? So the ritualization is the process of encoding it in the nervous system and that memory predates or 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 exists even when everything else is wiped that, away. Well, it's foundational. What's remarkable here is that the thing they're going to remember hasn't happened. Yeah. But no, but that's it's also very important. You know, this is, memory this is, is not in time. People think of memory just as something in time. It's just distance. And so you can remember a purpose, right? You can remember the reason why we're working in a bu building. Well, th that's not a remembrance in time. It's a remembrance towards the purpose. In Christianity, we have eschatological memory, which is that we remember our death, 
we remember the return of Christ, even though it hasn't happened yet, because we see it as the thing that binds us, the thing, this thing that we're moving towards. And if you cease to remember it, you start to fragment and break down. But this is so remarkable because this is the first time the people come in since the very early chapters when they were a dead loss with their slavish mentality. So here they are the first time. So they're doing it by faith. The Passover hasn't happened till the next day. And they're doing it with hope. He talks about it forever. Well, you, and I guess you establish, the, do you establish the kind of memory that Jonathan just described in some sense by faith? For example, when you remember your purpose, right? Because right? that isn't normally how memory is construed, right? But if you are referring to something that hasn't happened yet, it is the memory of, it is the memory of a possibility, a beckoning possibility that constitutes the memory. But you're right, Oz, that what's wonderful here is that we finally see the people of Israel like, coming together. Until now, it's been like, eh, you know, they're, they're complaining against Moses and we don't hear about them too much. And then finally, it's like... No, chapter 12 is the first chapter where they're called a congregation, yeah. Yeah. not just a people. Yeah, well, and there's yeah. an insistence here too that it's the feast that unites them. If this is the founding of the state in some real sense, there's an insistence that it is the feast that unites you. And I think our comments yesterday about the breakdown of the, the family dinner table are relevant in that regard because we really don't know what binds a family together, and I certainly do. When I look back on the time I spent with my parents, I do remember, I would say, holidays we took together. They stand out, but there was a lot of eating together associated with that. But what I remember about family life was primarily oriented around the table. That's when everyone comes together and when everyone has to share what they have to say. And when you're sitting there as a union and 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 God only knows what, how important that is to identity, given that we're food sharers. Yeah. So the, the, the Milton's Lucifer then, let's say, is the intellect that falls in love with itself, is a migration away from procedural memory, right? The rituals that bind us and, and revivify us, right? Into the prefrontal cortex. McGilchrist certainly think that as well. When he, Ian McGilchrist, when he's writing about the difference between the left hemisphere and the right, because the left, hemisphere does have a proclivity to fall in love with its own pronouncement, and it is fundamentally a semantic memory system. It's not imagination, and it's not procedure. Right? Whereas, the, whereas the right brain is knowledge how rather than knowledge that, mm -hmm. and so it's, it's much easier to enact physical rituals than to constantly affirm some doctrinal commitment or propositional commitment. Well, it, it's also, I think we all understand too that you to really deeply know something is to be able to act it out, not merely to be able to re-represent it abstractly. Like, because you can tell me something, and even if I don't understand it, I can say it back to you. And that's, we think of that understanding as shallow. So and what does that mean? And I thought about depth of conceptualization in terms of this memory hierarchy. If it's, if it's deep, it's semantic, and it's related, and it's represented in imagination, and it's represented in procedure, and then you really know it. And that, that goes along with that Rogerian idea of congruence too, right? Because all three of those levels, what you do and, and how your dreams work and what your semantic content is, that's all the same. 
So there's a, just to quickly say there's a there's this kind of beautiful double character to this this memorialization. There's the side of man maybe that Jonathan was just talking about, which is that it's 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 the repetitions that actually stabilize experience. I mean, if you think about you know you're you're a goldfish in a tank with a three second memory, and you're swimming around. Oh look, a castle! Oh look, a castle! There's no there's no you can't even get to castle because you have no time with with to develop the concept of castle, which will allow you to recognize the castle. It's just pure indecipherable, you know flux of particularity that you can't it's like being in a in a snowstorm or something that's what experience is without Blooming, without, without chaos. exactly without the, the frame of the categorizations of memory which which come to be through these repetitions that stabilize our experience of the world um, but there's this so there's that on the one hand this is a kind of iconically defining uh, repetition that will define the people and gather it in the, this beautiful way but there's also a side to this that I think has to do with 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 a kind of habit of revelation. So you think about you have an epiphany, you know, you have a great moment, you think, oh my God, I had this big insight into myself or my family, or you know, I've been, you know, big, you know, kind of a breakthrough moment. Well, like, that takes you so far as a moment of like, okay, I get it, but then how do you live that out? Instantiation. And, and so I think what's, partly what's being done here relative to say this, this, this inversion of, you know, Pharaoh into Moses, the, the contrast between Pharaoh and Moses, if Pharaoh was all about you know, the immediacy of the self and the totalitarian will, can't even care for his people, whereas Moses has got this alignment uh, uh, to God, which allows him to care for the people. The point is, and I think this is urgently true in all of our lives day by day, I mean, how, how do you maintain a, a habit of orientation and in some sense, I think this it's is repetition. this is this is saying you need repetitions well, well, when, uh, in relation to the revelation that bring you back again yeah, and again yeah. and again. Well, when you one of the things children really like, and if you want to have a stable life with kids, is you build islands of predictable stability, and then they because the kids' lives are chaotic, they're they don't know how to orient themselves in the world, and they can't integrate their emotions and their motivations and. If you repeat things every day, then they build little islands of predictability and that actually stabilizes their emotions. And so you want to have meal times at approximately the right t same time and you want to have bedtimes at approximately the same time or maybe exactly the same time. You want to have a ritual before bed and then the children can play outside of those stable places. But without that stability, and that would also mean stability of caretaker, for example, because that's of prime importance, especially to little kids, they can't build a habitable cosmos. And so it's definitely the case that that, that, that repetition is the basis you might say that repetition is the basis of the state, right? Yeah, we've yeah. talked about yeah. the liberating power of limits, and that's really mm -hmm. what these rituals and ceremonies do. It's a way at the individual level of imposing order on the chaos beyond, but not necessarily in, in this context, not just constructing it, it's reflecting established, created orders and, and parameters. It's mm -hmm. echoing that, as Jonathan was talking about yesterday, that's the significance of the... Yeah. Of the, of the, of but the you know, Paul w Johnson Rose. says the Hebrews created history as we know it. Mm. Now, there was a lot of our discussion has been scientific. Yours, obviously, you're a clinician. Science deals with the regular, the repeatable, what happens all the time, whereas history deals with the unique, the singular, the unprecedented, and that's what the Passover is, and that's what the Exodus is. And so we never want to lose that 
singularity of what's happening here. But doesn't the that can't be fully mm. explained by all the other parallels from mm. all the other disciplines? Mm. But the repetition of the Passover—it's a—it's not just a. No, I agree. It's not just a memorial. Yeah. It's it's a sort of every time the Passover happens, and Dennis could speak to this. It's a it's a way of remembering the is the people Jewish of Israel. But your children are taught to. To remember it as if they were there it's what's in the Haggadah, right. So why do you... By the way, forgive me, but you'll love this. Uh, when a Jewish kid, a religious kid raised in a religion, speaks about the Exodus, or, or, not just kid, I take that back, adults, we always say we were slaves, and, it's, and that's the way it is in the Haggadah, not they were slaves. I wish Americans said, we, forgive me, fought the British. Uh, or we fought for independence. You're welcome back anytime, Dan. <laughs> I don't know if you'll want us right now. I, I, this is a very serious problem. Make America I just want to add two very quick points to that. Without ritual, no religion or nation will survive. Part of America's great problem is that uh, Independence Day has become hot dogs and, uh, and, and beer or drinks and not a celebration of independence. Uh, Thanksgiving is losing its meaning. In fact, it's been renamed Indigenous Peoples Day uh, by, by the woke. Uh, if you don't have ritual, you don't survive. And one other point that I, I think you'll find provocative. So uh, Jews always wonder, if God took us out of Egypt, why didn't he take us out of Europe? Right, very logical question about the Holocaust or any all the th massive sufferings of Jews. And I have a theory that the reason it is so important to, for a Jew to remember the Exodus is because that's when God did intervene on our behalf. And we have to remember that in light of the fact that he won't be intervening that much in the future. I have a question about that, which is um, the... Um, Dennis, when you're talking about that we we fought the British, let's say, right, or we were there, how do we make a differentiation between saying, like, well, we were slaveholders? Like, how do you make a differentiation from the positive versus the things that are negative, which then become the collective guilt issue that we're discussing? My answer to that is slavery was ubiquitous. It was universal. Freedom was unique to the experiment that America embarked on. So you celebrate what is unique not what is what it, of course you don't deny that we we were slaveholders uh that is correct but by the way even then we isn't fully accurate half the country were not slave owners in fact far more than half most southerners were not even slaveholders but uh i think the you you emphasize what is unique both evil and good Germ the holocaust was unique so we speak about a war is not unique uh, but but uh, but the Holocaust was uniquely evil, and the founding of the freest society in human history was also unique. So that that to me would, you know, that's you all, how I would address that you question. You also try to do what you can to separate the wheat from the chaff. It's like it's clearly the case that we did all sorts of terrible things in the past, but that doesn't mean a that all of the things we did were terrible, or b that there wasn't a liberating spirit in amongst the catastrophe of, and the tyranny. And also, I think you can make a pretty damn strong case that in a miraculous way, the liberating spirit won. We don't have slavery now, that's the miracle. Not, no, it's not surprising we had it in the past, that's absolutely predictable. And that's part of this issue of the unique. And so, 
the problem with merely diagnosing the past as a storehouse of complete atrocious catastrophe is everything becomes chaff. Well, yeah, of, of course, of course. I just mean, it's it's just interesting to think it through because it's like, did we win the Civil War, mm-hmm. right? Because it's hard. It's, right, it's right, like there's right. certain parameters that get difficult for people around identity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I have a question about, just a question about, um, we've decided here that this memorialization is a repetition and and it's also a foundation. And so then that begs a question that, that's germane to what we discussed at the end of yesterday, which was, why is it the Passover that becomes the memorial and the foundation? And is it the sacrifice of the innocent? And it's because it's the sacrifice of the lambs and the blood. And so is the idea here that the foundation of the proper state is the voluntary sacrifice of the innocent? Is it's is that what's happening? Here? It is, no, I don't think it's. I don't think. I think that we need to see it really in terms of of Egypt as as opposites. So you have the end of a world. Egypt ends. God takes the seed out of Egypt. We have a new beginning, which is also based on sacrifice. It's based on voluntary sacrifice. But that's the magic of of the the Passover sacrifice. It's as if if you are willing to give your firstborn to God, God will give him back to you. That's the surprise of so willing found, sacrifice. Okay, so is it founded on the principle of voluntary sacrifice? I think so. No. You don't oh, think so. You no. don't think so. Okay. I think the plain and obvious thing, this was the night of liberation. Right. I agree with they that. They went out right. that night. But, but there's also a sacrificial no, that's, element that, that's, that's, that's there too in the Passover, how it happened. But the basic thing, and they remember it through history, isn't it, Dennis? They were well, free we that night. Well, we say in our prayers over and over, just as for the Christian, the, the crucifixion and resurrection are the central events, I believe, of Christian theology. The central events of Jewish theology, and I didn't make this up, it is constant in Jewish prayer is creation and exodus. If, if you deny either of those, and you're certainly free to, you, you have put yourself outside of Judaism. That, that is the Jewish normative view. Yeah, but I think it, it's not necessarily, it's not a zero-sum game. No, you know, we've exactly. been talking a lot about creation and redemption. These two, these are two sides of the same coin, just as for Christians, cross and resurrection are two sides of the same coin. So, yeah, but it's, it's, it's a recreation of the world. And yeah, you see right. it, right? So, so it is, but is, yeah. in this case, definitely the giving yeah. up of your first fruits and the giving up of that which is primary to God, and then the surprise of God saying, actually, no you can have it back, mm-hmm. right? And I think that that's definitely part of the, it's part of the story. It's not the only mm-hmm. thing. Yeah, I agree, yeah. no, already, right. but no, it's no, part no. of I, I, No, I wouldn't want to make it. The, By the way, do any of you have a reaction? And I'm not, I'm not, you know, urging that there be one, but I, that idea that we Jews have to remember this because God may not intervene again. Does that strike you as plausible? Because I well, can just- Well, you do have the mystery in, in the Bible in some sense and maybe in history itself, is, well, if God was there so much in the times that are being described, where did he go as time progressed? Right. And that's the deus abscondus problem, and, 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 and I don't know exactly how to contend with that, but, but Do what you're saying is definitely God is not involved in Israel, uh, like in the uh, existence I believe, oh, of Israel. I believe in the ultimate sense, there's no question. God, God is uh, constantly the, the, the guardian of Israel. It's, that's repeated. But it's clear that, you know, most people don't know that in the 1660s, about the same percentage of Jews in Europe were murdered uh, as were by in the Holocaust, about a third. 
uh, or well, two thirds in the case of the Holocaust, I believe, but one third in the Chmielnitsky pogroms in in Ukraine and slash Poland, uh, and uh, it, God saves the Jewish people, but but not the Jews. And, and that, that, by the way, I have comfort in that. I don't expect to be individually saved. I, but I just want to note that religious Jews in the death camps celebrated to the best of their ability the Seder. So here they are facing gas chambers and saying, thank you for saving us. We remember you saved us from, from Pharaoh. That's an incredible thing. And that's why I say it gives... It gives comfort, even though I'm not being saved now, but I know you intervened well, it, on I our behalf. It, I think it makes sense for people to believe in the fundamental ascendance of the spirit that leads us from slavery under all conditions. Because to, to not have faith in that is really, in some sense, to lose faith in life itself. And so that would even be, if you're in, in the situation of a camp, what do you have to have faith in? Well, in some sense, just to live, and I think this is something Solzhenitsyn observed too, to just to live under those conditions, you still have to believe in the ascendancy, the ultimate ascendancy ultimate. of the spirit that calls men, mankind out of tyranny. And isn't it where the story picks up? Because God existed before the Jews were enslaved in Egypt. They existed when all the firstborn were killed, right? And so it sort of depends where where it is, because you could say to them then, when they were in Egypt before God said, "I've heard I've heard the cries of my people." It's sort of the same position, right? Mm -hmm. So that God it's wasn't, not that God wasn't there, right? right so we right. can exactly correct. But, okay, okay. So I would like to point out that we've got through one one verse so far. <laughs> probably proceed. Well, it was a biggie. So it was, was a big a one. It was okay. a big one. We need to get Shapiro in here reading. <laughs> seven, yeah. Seven days. Seven days shall ye eat unleavened bread. Even the first day ye shall put away leaven out of your houses. For whosoever eateth leavened bread from the first day until the seventh day, that soul shall be cut off from Israel. And in the first day there shall be an holy convocation, and in the seventh day there shall be an holy convocation to you. No manner of work shall be done in them, save that which every man must eat. That may that only may done be done of you. It's another application of a set of laws here and, and an establishing set of principles. And ye shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for in this selfsame day have I brought your armies out of the land of Egypt. That's to your point with regard to freedom. Therefore, shall you observe this day in your generations by an ordinance, an interesting eh? ordinance, because an ordinance is something that, that ordinates. It's like a coordinate. It's like a, it's an establishing system by an ordinance forever. In the first month, on the 14th, month, 14th day of the month even, at even, Ye shall eat unleavened bread until the one and twentieth day of the month at even. Seven days shall there be no leaven found in your houses, for whosoever eateth that which is leavened, even that soul shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he be a stranger or born in the land. Ye shall eat nothing leavened. In all your habitations shall ye eat unleavened bread." Very much emphasized there, this this structure of rules. Well, then, it's not called Passover in the, the Torah. It's called the ho the holiday of matzahs, of unleavened bread, Chag HaMatzot. Mm -hmm. 
Mm -hmm. And did, do you think we analyzed the motif of unleavened bread I think sufficiently we did, yeah. before? By okay. the way, I will I will get a ski jet. Is that what it's called? Just ski I will ski. buy one for anyone who could name all the holidays of the Torah. <laughs> now, is, does this include all the people who are listening? <laughs> <laughs> Careful what send you in, Send in your responses. <laughs> no, no, I'm serious. Could you think you could? It's an interesting question. And by the way, there are seven. Again, seven. Oh, well, I can't. Come on, Greg. Oh, don't let us down. I'm, 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 I'm going to kick this to Oz. No, I got to. <laughs> You've got us, Dennis. But the vast majority of Jews couldn't do it. They would, they would, because one is very obscure and I have a fun. All right, so Shabbat. Rosh Hashanah, which is called the day of, of, uh, of trumpets, Yom Kippur, Passover, Pentecost, Shavuot, Tabernacle, Sukkot, uh, and then the seventh, which is the, the one that trips up everybody, including most Jews, called Shmini Atzeret. It's his own holiday. It's the, after the seven days of tabernacles is the eighth day. Shmini means eighth. Atzeret is convocation, meeting. It is the only holiday that has no purpose other than having a good time. <laughs> it, it doesn't commemorate anything. It is a fascinating thing. So I don't, I don't work on Jewish holidays that are in the Torah. I, I, that's, so I remember uh, many of you know uh, Larry Elder, who, the, the, who ran you know, for, for governor uh, in California, a dear friend of mine. So we used to be on the same station in Los Angeles. And I would be on in the afternoon, and he would follow me in his talk show. And he, so I said, so Larry, I just want you to know I won't be on tomorrow. Oh, he goes, why? I said, well, you know, I don't broadcast on Jewish holidays. And he goes, which holiday is it? And I go, Shmini Atzeret. And the guy was convinced I made it up to take the day off. <laughs> then Moses called for all the elders of Israel and said unto them, Draw out and take you a lamb according to your families and kill the Passover. And you shall take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and strike the lintel and the two side posts with the blood that is in the basin. And none of you shall go out at the door of his house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through to smite the Egyptians. And when he seeth the blood upon the lintel and on the two side posts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not suffer the destroyer to come into your houses to smite you. And you shall observe this thing for an ordinance to thee and to thy sons forever. It's a mark of proper sacrifice, mark of the sacrifice of the lamb. And that stops the power that destroyed Egypt from now and will continue to destroy Egypt from now destroying the Israelites. And that's part of the foundation of the state of Israel. Is but, that okay? okay. But, it, but it's in reverse, isn't it? I mean, also saying earlier that the, the sacrifice to commemorate and constitute the people of Israel and to remember the liberation of the people from Egypt happens before before the before the event, before, mm. as it were, before the liberating event. So liturgy and history are kind of yeah. sort of flipped around and they constantly interwoven, as we'll see in the rest of the Yeah, rest well, of the that's chapter. an interesting thing, too. You know, one of the things that Mircea Eliad pointed out that was that the primary religious revelations of a society often occur prior to the establishment of the society. So, for example, the Egyptian religious revelations 
were established at the beginning of the Egyptian dynasty. And then it's almost as if they ran their course. You know, they had this intense motivational significance as animating stories. But that was there as a prodroma to the culture itself and not as a derivation from it. And that has something to do with the the power of the spirit of, of a newly revealed truth. And you'd say, well, what's a newly revealed truth? It's like, because that sounds just like religious language, but it's not. It strikes you with the force of a deep intuition. And so then you're motivated to integrate yourself around it. But not only that, if it's a really powerful revelatory idea and you share it with other people, they're drawn into that right away. They find it equally exciting or they're equally filled with enthusiasm. And that's that's a real mystery that that, that, that happens at the beginning of a enterprise in some sense. And I think that's partly what this marks is so, because obviously the fact that this is what the Israelites should do to protect them from the ultimate avenging spirit of God, this is a revelation. They're not thinking this up by themselves. And it's, it's a surprising revelation. It's partially how narrative contract works in stories, right? You have to introduce something in the first act, let's say of a three-act screenplay, to not have it feel like a deus ex machina. So you can't have two acts and then have all of a sudden science fiction in the third act. You have to have the language of any narrative has to be embodied in the opening in the first act. And it's part of the narrative contract that you make. And so in a lot of well, ways- that's interesting. That's part of, that's a reflection in some sense of the same idea that Jonathan had about memory is that by what you're doing right at the beginning of the story is you're actually establishing a contractual relationship about the, how the history of the characters is going to progress and the reader accepts that contract, that's part of the suspension right. of disbelief. Well, then if you violate it, all you do is annoy your reader. That's right. And part of it is what's fantastical or coincidental can happen in the first act, right? You can say, well, how is it possible that an undercover Navy SEAL happened to be on the hijacked airplane? And it's like, well, all the times it didn't happen, we didn't make a movie about it, mm -hmm. right? It's fine to do in the first act. But if that, if we're reliant on that to continue the narrative in the third act, then it doesn't, it doesn't right. hold together. Then, well, then you don't have a story. You have a sequence of deus ex machinas, and that's not a that's story right. at all. It's completely unimaginable. Well, and what happens with a story is you set the conditions into place in the narrative contract. And then what happens, the best moments that we find in in literature and film is when something happens and it's completely surprising and makes sense at the same time. Yeah. Right? There's these moments right, where there's right. a confluence yeah. and part yeah. of that is because- Well, that's what happens in a joke. Right. And that's what happens, especially a great joke. That's you think, aha, mm -hmm. and it punches you. And which it's is the rule it's of threes because you start to establish a pattern and then you invert it, but the pattern has to be laid. So what's that rule of threes? In a joke? Yeah. Well, it's always, right, it's-, it's yeah, you mentioned, I think you mentioned this the other day, that, that one is, can't start a pattern, obviously. Two, again, coincidence. Mm -hmm. And then with the third, it's then a pattern. the pattern kicks in. Yeah. And you reverse the pattern in a joke, right? So in narrative, you need all of the clay, the material that is the world building, let's just say. It has to, it has to exist at the beginning. Hmm. A comedian I had on my radio show told me what every joke must have, and it, it permanently stayed with me, and he was right. Surprise and a victim. Hmm. Hmm. Analyze any joke you know, and you will find that that is the case. Hmm. Even if the victim is yourself, doesn't matter. And that's the best kind of joke. Uh, the best, the yes. best kind yes. of joke. The English are particularly good at that. Is that self self-lacerating? You bet. Mm -hmm. You bet. And that's is the that sign true? Not at all. Not at all. <laughs> 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 and it shall come to pass when ye become to the land which the Lord will give you according as he hath promised, 
that you shall keep this service. Service. So this is something you're doing for, for your, you, your fellow man and God in service. And it shall, so that's a feast in, in service of the Lord in the wilderness. And, and, and okay, okay. And it shall come to pass when your children shall say unto you, what mean you by this service? That you shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, who passed over the houses of the children of Israel in Egypt. So that's what's being celebrated is the fact that that Israel is now permanently spared in some sense, if they follow God's dictates, from the destroying spirit who demolishes the tyranny. That's, that's the part of the covenant idea. It is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, who passed over the houses of the children of Israel in Egypt, when he smote the Egyptians and delivered our houses. And the people bowed their head and worshipped. So they're humble in, in response to this salvation from the spirit of tyranny and the consequences of the spirit of tyranny. And the children of Israel went away and did as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. So did they. And it came to pass that at midnight the Lord smote all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh that sat on his throne unto the firstborn of the captive that was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of cattle. There's another emphasis there, I would say, too, on this the distribution of the tyrannical spirit, right? Is that and this just seems to me to be so accurate because again. We touched on this before that in a totalitarian state, it's not top down. So it's not just the Pharaoh. It's that if the totalitarian spirit is pride and deceit and envy, something like that, it's distributed to the degree that the society is totalitarian. Everyone is participating in it all the time. And so the consequences of that are visited on everyone from king to even to the captive of the king. Yeah, what do we make of that? God. That's so strange. The firstborn of the, of the captive. Well, that the, is... well, the captive is, there's no one in a society who's less part of a society, mm. but still part of a society mm. than someone who's in the jail. You're still complicit, even yeah. if you yeah, right. treated as, as a designated as an enemy of society. Yeah, well, that, well, and that is certainly... Well, you're under the laws of the society. You're under the yeah. laws, yeah. yeah. Right. Well, that, okay. that certainly, that was Solzhenitsyn's mm. commentary on the gulags. You know, mm. he said, but he regarded himself as complicit even though he was a victim. Yeah. So, but isn't the classical discussion, there's a solidarity in guilt, you're right. Everyone, but there's also people under a bad regime, cop it in the neck, in the way we don't living, say, in a democracy. And both are right. But I, I yes, think so, even yeah. in the text, though, I think just like we saw when you talked about the pharaoh and the woman behind the mill, I think that this is also an attempt to make us understand that this is a tremendous, terrible thing. And we are also meant to have compassion for the Egyptians to a certain extent, because like, okay, the captive in the jail, like, right. uh, okay, so this is terrible. Like, this is a terrible, it's the end of the world. Like, in the end of the world, everybody pays. And so there is a remnant which is taking out, taken out of this end, but we are not meant to just celebrate the, 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 the terror that is, like you were saying about the, we're not meant to just celebrate the terror that is brought upon the Egyptians either. Because mm. it's the end of anti-creation. It's got to be comprehensive. It's got to be total. Thank yeah. <laughs> you. That'll be my new gesture. Everybody will know what I mean. <laughs> and the Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants, and all the Egyptians, 
And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where there was not one dead. So here's what's amazing to me about this story is that in conventional or, I mean, not conventional, sorry, in contemporary story terms, this is exactly the wrong way that you would tell a story. All the information is given first, right? All the twists and turns. Then you're told that you're gonna celebrate it. Then you're told how it'll go through the future. Then you're told what's gonna happen. Then you're you're told all the ramifications. And then finally it says what happens. And so the telling of this is, is, is speaking to, it's not, it's not at a narrative um, cognitive level. It's literally establishing a story, talking straight to procedural memory. Yeah, and it's also traditional storytelling is more to do with this procedural memory and this remembering. So think of the Iliad. We always think we read the Iliad. No, people read the Iliad as a ritual event. They all knew it by they heart. Heard it. They, they knew all it. the hmm. all. The, so the manner in which it's told is rather th- this anticipation. It's like we know what's going to happen. So it's it's actually a work of anticipation towards the story rather than constant surprise and that we saying, have now. Yeah, and, and it's we, saying here's a story. Make sure you encode it. Yeah. This is well, what the story is about. Well, right? chil- children do that in some sense. They want to do that with many of the stories they're told. Like fairy tales are meant yeah, for that. They want, they want to hear it over and over. over. You say it and they're like, yeah, waiting, what? when are you going to say the same yeah. thing again? Like, yeah, right, right. When are you going to say, like, you know, the, when the wolf knocks tale? at the door Wait, and so says... What is the reason? I know I, I'm fascinated that kids want to do it over and over. Why? Well, I think partly because they haven't fully understood it. But partly because it's, so when I watched my son, he watched Pinocchio, especially the scene with the, uh, the, the fire-breathing whale, which is basically a dragon, which is the climax scene of the entire movie. He probably watched that 50 times. I was thinking, what, what's up with you, kid, 50 times? It's, well, it's, really, it's a really complicated idea to rescue your father from the belly of the dragon. It's like, it took him a long time to get that. And I don't know, it's, it's something like the translation from the, the purely representational down into the procedural. I think it's, and there, but there's a reassurance in it too, is right, well, I used to tell my kids when I took them to a scary movie, which was watch the hero. That's how you that's how you become not scared. This is scary. Just watch the hero. And then you show them the movie again, they're still scared, but the hero wins. And you show them the movie again, they're still scared, but the hero wins. And so they, especially if it's scary, they need to see it repeated and repeated and repeated and repeated and repeated to see that there's always triumph over catastrophe and evil. That's a real relief to them. I want to emphasize something, though, that is different from that and from the repetition, which is we don't start Hansel and Gretel by saying, we're going to have a story that's going to be a woman who's going to eat these kids. That's how that's going to end. Here's how we're going to celebrate it. Here's how you should discuss it. Here's what it's going to feel like. This is more like Rocky Horror Picture Show. Or like the manner in which people who love Star Wars dress up and then will go see Star Wars again and again and again. But again, Star Wars doesn't say at the beginning, here's everything right, that's going to happen. Right. So yeah. th- it's very interesting. It's this is ritualistic. This is this is speaking straight into procedural memory. It's saying encode this. Yeah. It's establishing a mythology before the story even exists and proclaiming it. So itself. do you have some sense of why that's happening at a narrative level, or do you think it has to do with something different about how stories were used? you know, 3,000 years ago. This is particularly unique because that's the, that's the basis for how you, how you, if you want to establish a tradition with ritual, you lead with procedural memory. You're encoding it. It's not just like a thrilling story, right? And then you have fans who will want to see it and return to it. 
it doesn't work if you say to Star Wars, oh, by the way, right, Darth Vader is Luke Skywalker's father. Wait till you get there. Here's how we're going to celebrate it. There's going to be bar mitzvahs about this, right? It's like you don't, we, you don't establish all the structures of how a story is going to exist in society, and then you sit there while, it, while it's laid out before you. There's no element of suspense because it's not about suspense. It's not about holding your attention. It's not about holding your attention in the moment. It's about, it's about encoding the attention through your culture, and so it's got a completely different aim from a lot of and other And that's why you think it gives, it's given it this different structure. There's another mm. side to that, though. I mean, of course, there's on the, on the one hand, you, when you talk about reading, hearing this children's story again and again, I mean, that's what ritual is. Like, there, there's never a life for any human being in which you don't need those, those, the, that, that constant exposure to the deep things that remind you what you're about or oh, yeah. how to live or whatever. So there's, oh, no, there's, no getting, there's no getting over a ritual like this in human life. That's mm -hmm. one of the points. But I think narratively, one of the things, you know, there's a theological point being made here, which is that, that you, you, you can't, the, the Israelites, they, they, the the departure or the being the liberation from the Egyptians, like they have to commend them themselves to God. You know, it's not like oh, free us and then we'll and then we'll trust you. Mm -hmm. It's like no, there's a, there's a fundamental casting of the people uh, in faith. You might say in the goodness beyond themselves that they have that they believe in, and that that there's it's not like you get it and then you're like oh okay fine. Now of course there've been the miracles and the so on and so forth in the in the in the in the in the, in the book of, in the story up until now, but there's a there's a profound sense here that, that what, the, what is going on with the Israelites is the contrast to Pharaoh, right? Like no under no terms will you go and the Israelites have to say, we will go under any terms and we're not, we, you, we don't get the proof first. We have to cast ourselves on the principle in which we are putting well, look, our life before look, we man, go. If you're going to fight against tyranny in some real sense, you have to fight against the tyranny before the tyranny disappears. And in order to fight against the tyranny, you have to evince faith that by appealing to the spirit that will lead you out of tyranny, that will work. And that's so preposterous. I mean, when someone like Solzhenitsyn says, one man who stops lying will bring down a tyranny, it's like, what, really? It's like, no, obviously not, but, but not so obviously not. And so the faith, and, and so this is another part of this foundational element in this story is that, because the Israelites do evince faith in that which transcends tyranny as the foundation of their state, right? Well, faith, faith in God, I mean, I think this is the first time we see them as a, you know, as a collective, mm -hmm. as a nation. It's that striking verse in 27, just the end of 27, and the people bowed the head. Right, right, right. And worshipped. Right. To this, that's right, they're, 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 right. they're collectively pronouncing their allegiance to the spirit that's fighting against the tyranny of the Egyptian that's state. That's right. And then just one verse later, and it came to pass. So it imme immediately precedes the sequence of events at, at, at midnight. But mm -hmm. it, it happened, this, this is very important that this first ritual happens in Egypt. I mean, they believe that God will liberate them, but they haven't been liberated yet. And so the, it's the, you might say the, the, the very yeah, condition the of the liberation. Been brought low yet. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. It's a precondition. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's that faith as a precondition for liberation. Well, I think that that has to be true, because otherwise, why would anyone ever fight against the tyranny? So that's very, that's extremely interesting. And it came to pass that at midnight, the Lord smote all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh that sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive that was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of cattle. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where there was not one dead. 
And he called for Moses and Aaron by night and said, Rise up and get you forth from among my people, both ye and the children of Israel, and go, serve the Lord, as ye have said. So even the Pharaoh now doesn't just say you're free. <laughs> he says, you're no longer under the auspices of tyranny, but it's incumbent upon you to go serve the Lord. It's, it's ambiguous that though. I mean, is he, as it were, conceding to the sovereignty of, of the Lord, or is it a kind of mocking, serve the Lord as ye have said? Well, I think he's at least conceding that the Israelites should do that. Right, as you would do it. It's not yet a recognition of the God's sovereignty. Well, if you, if you took his character seriously, you'd probably use that interpretation. He's at least willing to admit that the Israelites should do this, for sure. Yeah, because yeah. he doesn't go out into the desert with them. And also take your flocks and your herds, as ye have said, although the best of them does go with them, which is so interesting. Also take your flocks and your herds, as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. Well, there's some humility there. And the Egyptians were urgent upon the people that they might send them out of the land in haste, for they said, we all be dead men. And the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading troughs being bound up in their clothes upon their shoulders. And the children of Israel did according to the word of Moses, and they borrowed of the Egyptians jewels of silver and jewels of gold and raiment. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Well, that answers that question. So they lent unto them such things as they required. So the, the Hebrews aren't stealing this at this mm -hmm. point. Being given. They're mm -hmm. being given. Yeah. And it's, the, it's, the, it's symbolic of their transition from slaves to... To, to, to the new masters. To, 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 new, to, to free people. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. And they spoiled the Egyptians. And the children of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Sukkoth about... 600,000 on foot that were men okay, beside this, children. This is one of the hardest things I, I encountered in writing my commentary because I believe it's God's word and I also believe that reason has to be used. So I called it the rational Bible. It's uh, the Torah itself does not sustain the notion that there were 2 million people. It's the, it's the tradition among believers, and certainly Jews always say millions. Just to give one example, uh, God says that the seven nations in Canaan are all larger than, than, the, uh, than the Israelites. So that would mean 14 million people in Canaan. It is inconceivable. Now, God can do anything, and any miracle is possible, but I don't think, I don't think the Torah meant that. So I never had a, a satisfactory answer, and I write that. I don't have a satisfactory answer. It doesn't negate my belief in the divine authorship or anything else, but I, I won't make up an answer if I don't have one. There is an answer that has satisfied me that I came across in doing, uh, in doing Numbers, the fourth of the five books, which I'm, I'm, I'm working on now, and in a nutshell, and if you want more, I'll bring in the writing. Uh, it is probable that this is an exaggeration by 10 times. Mm. So you think it's a metaphorical? There's no question in my mind. The, the, 
we use numbers with precision. Numbers in the Torah, look, it's, it's very unlikely that it's coincidental. 40 days of flood, yeah. 40 yeah. nights on Sinai, some, yeah. twice, yeah. 40 years in the desert. It, it means a divinely important period of time. It doesn't mean the number after 39. So they found Middle Eastern evidence of 10 times the amounts that were really there to intimidate foes and to encourage the people. Look at how numerous. I mean, will they will be will we be as numerous as the stars in the sky? There were trillions of stars in the sky. It, was it meant literally? So uh, I, 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 th I think that's important because I want to sustain reason and well, faith. We can, we can certainly perfectly be willing and, and should be willing to note that in all our books of fiction and representation, we use metaphor, poetry and image to make points, and that doesn't mean that it's not true. Right, it just doesn't means mean that it's, it's that, right. no. That's a whole. It's we need true. to understand true it properly. True is complicated. With the, with, I think we're invited to see it as a kind of as typological, really, as kind of anticipating. Uh, well, first, it's a crazily high number. Right, right, uh, right. That's just, the point. And so maybe it's saying I mean, that, that it has to do with right, how how would he speak? It says he spoke to the whole congregation of Israel. Yeah. He spoke to two million people. You can't do that with microphones. No, right. Yeah. But so so it, it could be. A, what's it a sign of the the Egyptians? prospered uh, in Egypt. They, they, they multiplied over the 400 years that they were in bondage. I don't know. It's, it's a rhetorical, rhetorical well, device. I think there are 600 chariots, aren't there? Doesn't Pharaoh mm. have 600 chariots later, later on? Mm -hmm. So I think that's we're invited to draw a counterpoint between the two, this sort of yeah, yeah. Numbers have much it has more to do magic with, It also has to do with six. I think that because it's a new creation and it's at least a multiple of six, that it's it's trying to help us understand that it is related to a kind of a new man or a new creation of man. It yeah. may well be. Yeah, well, numbers, we, we don't understand how magic numbers were to people who weren't literate. They're, they're still magic, but they're really magic to people who aren't literate, just like words are, especially written words. And the children of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Sukkoth, about 600,000 on foot, that were men, beside children, and a mixed multitude went up also with them, and flocks and herds, even very much cattle. And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough which they brought forth out of Egypt, for it was not leavened, because they were thrust out of Egypt, right, because we're in a hurry, and could not tarry, neither had they prepared for themselves any victual. So that's interesting too. They have to, there's another act of faith, right? It's like, they've got some treasure and that's great, but they don't have a lot to eat and they're going out into a desert. And and one of the things we want to we want to note here, I think that's really important is that, because I've thought about this for so long, is why do people, and such so core to Exodus, why do people cling to their tyrannical catastrophe, even the one they impose on themselves? And the answer is, because it's out of the tyranny into the desert. Mm. And it isn't clear that the desert is better. Certainly, it could be worse because you can live in a tyranny and you can die in the desert. Not that you can't die in a tyranny, but you have to be. And maybe to flee from a tyranny, you have to be ready to flee at a moment's notice and you have to be willing to follow immediately what calls you out of the tyranny. And but so... You know the famous rabbi's remark, took the Lord one day to get Israel out of Egypt and 40 years and counting to get Egypt out of Israel. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And that, right, the right, second right, 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 exactly, and right, and that's why it's again forty. The desert isn't very big geographically speaking, and you think, well, what's going on with these Israelites? Forty years to get across that desert—that's a long time. But it's another use of numbers in the same way. I would say is that the point is it's three generations. It's a long time, and so don't be, don't be underestimating the dryness or the length of the post-tyranny desert, especially if you lose faith and orientation when you're in the desert, which is a high probability event. And I've, I've always thought about the, the Jewish emphasis on education is like it's the one thing you can take with you as you're driven from place to place. And a violin. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> well, and a book. Right, or a scroll. Right, right. And there's the way, a lot of, you, your comment reminded me you'll, you'll enjoy this. So this is not meant as a joke, by the way, but it is, a, it is funny nevertheless. The rabbis ask, so what has God been doing since creation? It's a very fair question. And their answer is bringing couples together which shows you how hard it is. <laughs> <laughs> so there's also a little detail I think is important to, to understand. So we talked about how this is the foundation of Israel. Like this is the new beginning, you know, the, the, the congregation, the bowing down, the, the participating in the sacrifice, the marking of the doors. You have this sense in which Israel is marking itself as different, marking itself as together in order to be a remnant out of this end of the world scenario where Egypt is being destroyed. But... There's also, just like in the ark, when Noah crossed the the waters, the animals were in the ark. Here, there's also this mention of what we call the mixed multitude and the animals. So there's a sense in which they're not repeating the totalitarian problem. That is, there is a room for the stranger to a certain extent. And you'll see after that, the rules, the laws will talk about how you are now going to engage with the stranger. And in the laws that the Torah will give, you always have to leave the corners of the field. There's a sense in which we don't want to reproduce this totalitarian world in which it's all work, no rest, no strange. Everything is just potential for our identity. Uh, and so this, this some, you this, leave some play in the system. Yeah. And so this, this mention of the mixed multitude that left with Israel and the animals is to, is to, I think is to emphasize that because, sure, sure. because so the next statement, Diversity we'll, statement. We'll have to do with that. We'll have to do with the, the strangers. We'll mm-hmm. see. It's a genuine diversity statement. Yeah. Is that even yeah. though there has to be a central order, there has to be room in that order for, well, all, what would you say, for the unavoidably exceptional? That's right. Something yeah. like that. And the strange, the strange, the strategic, right? Why strategic? Well, because different ideas and people, it's strategic in, you know, it's, it's the opposite of incest, right? So from, right, a, right. from a genetic perspective, from the, from the notion of new ideas and thoughts, I mean, that's one of the, uh, 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 a classic Right, so it's actually, it's a much better to, order to right. have that, that, well, that's a yin and yang balance too. That's right, is to mm-hmm. let in, is to prevent stagnation and mm-hmm. to prevent ossification is you need new ideas, mm-hmm. you need, you need yeah. new ground currents. But, but as we see later on where they kind of distinguish which law, well, the laws that apply to the people of Israel and the laws that apply to the stranger, there's integration and assimilation, but there's a clear distinction still yeah. always between, between so there, the So there's a, the, you'll see there's always warnings about something that's too far, right? Don't, don't sleep with the foreigner, like that's too far because they'll bring their foreign God's in. And it's like, and also, I mean, obviously don't sleep with your sister because it's like, that's way too close. Like you have to find that, that, that powerful optimized difference where you, where you're able to integrate, but also keep your identity at the same time. And there'll be some strangers that aren't allowed, that that aren't admitted at all, like the Amalekites later on. They're just, you know, complete ban on that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) 
selective when assimilation. There, be- the, the word stranger, by the way, is literally resident non-Jew. Hmm. That's what stranger is. The Hebrew is ger, and to ger means to reside. So it is the, the person who resides. That's why it says stranger and citizen. So that's the, contra, that's the contradistinction. So it's not just anybody. It's, it's very specific to the non-Jew who lives among you. Yeah. So just for whatever that's worth. Yeah, because it's not your enemy, because your enemy is also the stranger, and he wants to attack you. Now you have someone among you, but that doesn't participate completely in your identity. Right. Now, St. Augustine has the word resident alien. Yes, that's right. And that I would, have that on yes. my green card. Mm-hmm. Right, resident right. alien. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, resident alien. Right, so that's a specific kind of category. Mm-hmm. Now, the sojourning of the children of Israel who dwelt in Egypt was 430 years. That's the length of slavery, I suppose. And it came to pass at the end of the 430 years, even... The selfsame day it came to pass that all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It is a night to be much observed unto the Lord for bringing them out of the land of Egypt. This is that night of the Lord to be observed of all the children of Israel in their generations. That's the worship of the Spirit that brought them out of tyranny. And that's a fundamental definition of whatever God is. And the Lord said unto Moses and Aaron, This is the ordinance of the Passover. There shall no stranger eat thereof. But every man's servant that is bought for money, when thou hast circumcised him, then he shall eat thereof. So now he's participating in that, yeah. in that community. And you'll see all these rules are about this inside-outside relationship. How do you manage this resident alien who's not one of you? How much does he participate? How much can't he participate? Right. He can't eat right. of the Passover, but here's how you're going to deal right. with so them. Right, so that's, that's an attempt to clarify the, the borders. In, yeah. The conceptual borders, m- mostly the conceptual borders, but that would also be relevant to what constitutes the borders, period, because yeah. that's partly also how well, you define yeah. what constitutes the Well, no, they, they, they can be within the geographic borders, but there still have to be conceptual borders between... Circumcised mm-hmm. and uncircumcised. Mm-hmm. Now, the border is so important because that's the fundamental dispute between conservatives and liberals, fundamentally, is how porous the border should be. And the reason that's a fundamental dispute is because we never have an answer to that. Well, sometimes the border should be really thick and solid so nothing gets in because everything's too dangerous. And sometimes it should be completely porous because you need new ideas because you're so tyrannical. And that varies always. And so Part of the reason that the logos between conservatives and liberals is so important is that we're constantly adjudicating the porosity of the borders as a consequence of that dialogue. And you can never come up with a fixed answer. Right. What are the borders around gender? Right. It's everything is is this negotiation. No, I think part of the American stalemate is they don't discuss the key issue, which is citizenship. Mm-hmm. Well, that's again, that's a that's a border issue, and Trump was able to make much of that for for that for well, that but, reason. But but the, the conservatives don't talk about citizenship; they talk about walls. Uh, the other side talks about open borders. Yeah, America could take in a huge number if they make them Americans. Mm-hmm. I think that's what's so helpful about this passage, though, that it, it understands that assimilation is challenging, it's difficult, mm-hmm. but at the same time, one should be open to the stranger, open to the foreigner. We should be op- open to the possibility mm-hmm. of But they have to be incorporated within yeah. the structure. Through one the rituals and the, the ceremonies. And the and citizens. The that would assimilate them totally yeah. Okay, okay, okay. A foreigner and a hired servant shall not eat thereof. 
In one house shall it be eaten. Thou shalt not carry forth aught of the flesh abroad out of the house. So that's a union within the house, right? So that, that's part of setting up this hierarchy of borders as well. Neither shall ye break a bone thereof. All of the congregation of Israel shall keep it. That's like a definition. And when this stranger shall sojourn with thee, and will keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised, and then let him come near and keep it. That's his symbol of assimilation. Eh? And he shall be as one that is born in the land. Hmm. For no uncircumcised person shall eat thereof. Yeah, so that's the marker of belonging, and, and that's why that's yeah, so important. Yeah, it actually also happens to be an external skin which is removed, mm -hmm. like a garment of skin which is removed. Right, well, and it's also something that allows the phallus, the fellow-centric phallus, to shine forth in some real sense. Yeah. Well, it's, well you, got it, you got to put blood in the deal. Like, it's mm -hmm. not an skin easy point of answer, right? Yeah, that's, that's right. right. That's right. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. I was trying to avoid that, That's good, that's good. Well done. <laughs> One law shall be to him that is homeborn and unto the stranger that sojourneth among you. Yeah, well, that's quite something. That's definitely a, a negotiation of identity right there, is that you can, you can, that's how you can bring the stranger in. Thus did all the children of Israel, as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron, so did they. And it came to pass the selfsame day that the Lord did bring the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their armies. It's a wonderful sense of universality there. You know, one law shall be to him that is homeborn and unto the stranger that sojourneth among you. Right, a, a nice mediation between exclusion and inclusion. Yeah, well, it's the same. You might say that this is the way you see the universality of the God of the Hebrews, uh, which is, is a long history, is a long history of understanding of that universality, uh, but that it's, it's not, it's ultimately going to turn out to be a, I know there's a sense in which it is particular to the to the children of Israel, but the definition, the, the relation of the people to God is one that is universalizable. This is this is this is not. Uh, this is going to turn out to be uh, a revelation that is. Uh, it transcends the Israelites. That transcends any particular people. Now, Jordan, I just I know this, we can cut this afterwards. I may have missed it, but I did. We read verses forty three and forty four. I just thought we, if we missed them, we might want to catch them for the camera. Yeah. We did read them? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yep. Okay, good. Sorry, I missed them. Yeah. Exodus 13, 1. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Sanctify unto me all the firstborn, whatsoever opened the womb among the children of Israel. So that's actually the, that's actually the child of, of what was virginal then as well, up to that point in some real sense. Yeah. yeah. By the way, yeah. since it's open the womb in Jewish law, you must find this of interest, it would not include a cesarean birth. Huh. Say that again. A child, uh, the firstborn of cesarean is not considered the firstborn under Jewish law. Wow. Because it didn't open the But they're the, the only ones who can kill Macbeth nonetheless, so there's some advantage. That's what they had in mind. Mm. Sanctify unto me all the firstborn, whatsoever openeth the womb among the children of Israel, both of man and of beast, it is mine. First and foremost is God's. And Moses said unto the people, Remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of bondage. For by strength of hand, the Lord brought you out from this place. So again, that is remember what transcends tyranny. That's the fundamental issue here. 
There shall be no leavened bread eaten. This day came you out in the month Abib. And it shall be when the Lord shall bring thee into the land of the Canaanites. Abib means spring. Means spring? Yeah, spring. the, the, the oh, season so, spring. So that's okay. a creation creation motif again, Jonathan, okay. do you think? Okay. Yeah. Well, is spring is certainly a new the, beginning. Is that the beginning of the Jewish liturgical year? Is that is that? There are many new years, actually. Okay, the, yeah. this, is the, this is not Rosh Hashanah. Okay. Yeah. Th that's, that's in the fall. Right. Th this, yeah, is the, this is the, that's the one Jews celebrate. Mm. But this is this is a, a new year. A new beginning. Yeah, a new beginning. New begin right. Beginning of new life. Right. Uh -huh. yes. Okay, okay. And it shall be when the Lord shall bring thee into the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Hivites, and Jebusites, which he swear unto thy fathers to give thee, a land flowing with milk and honey. So we're specifying the destination again. That thou shalt keep this service in this month. Seven days thou shalt eat unleavened bread, and in the seventh day shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten seven days, and there shall be no leavened bread seen with thee, neither shall there be leaven seen with thee in all thy quarters. And thou shalt show thy son in that day, saying, This is done because of that which the Lord did unto me when I came forth out of Egypt. Well, if you're a child and you see your parents doing something, especially if they repeat it, then you, you presume automatically that it's important. And notice, for me, and notice. not them. Mm -hmm. It's super interesting about what Greg was saying in terms of the manner in which the narrative is set up. It's that before the narrative happens, they're like, this is the ritual on which the narrative is is based then there's the story and then they're like okay now here's the ritual again like they're, it's like repeating now the same ritual well, the, the that insistence is yeah, that yeah, you yeah. have to act this out that's right yeah right right that it has to be acted out and not merely told or merely represented no i think it's also yeah. it's, it's a kind of hinge to the next chapter we don't don't want to jump ahead but i think it it, jo it joins together the passover and that mm -hmm. that moment of liberation and then the ultimate, the, the second phase of liberation, because they're, they're not out yet. Mm -hmm. Well, you see in the Sermon on the Mount, when Christ talks about going forward to teach the Word of God, he insists that you act first and do and then teach. And so the, the action is seen is in pri as primary in that abstracted re-representation of the Law and the Prophets. It's still the emphasis there that action is the crucial crucial issue here, Well, that's, so to that's speak. also like clean up your room before you criticize the world. Mm -hmm. Right. What's interesting about the, there's, for me, there's a, I'm, I'm, I'm crassly referring it to as a prop, but the prop of the unleavened bread appears when they had plenty of time for it to rise. I mean, that's another thing that's really interesting. Like everyone could have had a nice, you know, yeasty dish, right? Mm. But it's almost like the, the prop is this dropped handkerchief, right? Because moving forward, we're not, there, there's not going to be time. Mm. And so it's very interesting because it appears before it's another part of this, like pre-establishing of what the rules of the, of what the necessity, what the, what the, the, the tools and the matter of the narrative, right? Mm. They all exist before it happens. Well, and there's this drop everything and follow God motif too. And that's echoed continually in the Gospels as well, the idea that you're, no matter what's happening and no matter who you're beholden to, mm. even if it's your own fortune in some sense, that when the Spirit calls, you're to drop everything and attend to that 100%. And, of course, how else would you escape from a tyranny mm. <laughs> if you didn't do that? Because it's not like you're going to have all the, all the opportunity in the world, so to speak. I've often been puzzled by um, this sort of strange 
paradox that Exodus is often lifted up as this great manifesto for emancipation and political liberation down the centuries. Oz, you talked about this in, a, in an earlier session, didn't you, in the 1660s in England and, and the civil rights movement and, and antebellum uh, United States. Mm. But it's strange, you know, almost immediately, or you know, even before they're out, the, there's a contemplation that, that there's this sort of uh, prefiguring or a, a, a declaration that liberation will be followed immediately by conquest, um, by, uh, entry, by a, a new land will be given that is effectively going to involve conflict, it's going to involve a kind of terror, it's going to involve uh, the... the, the, the in, in many ways, the complete reverse of what's been, what's about to be brought about. So uh, I, fi I find that interesting. So I would say, to some degree, you know, when you escape from a single tyranny, psychologically, you're immediately exposing yourself to a war of competing principalities, and that's 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 illustrated to some degree in the attraction of the Israelites towards idolatry. It's so you're out of the tyranny. It's one thing, solid. Now you're into the land of potential and multiplicity, and then you're subject to the warring of competing requirements. And so there isn't any movement from tyranny through the desert into the promised land without subjugation to the war of competing principalities. That's, that's part of the reason that people also become nostalgic for the tyranny. It's like, oh my God, now we're free. Man, this is complicated. And it's complicated because many things are pulling on you, right? And so you think, well, I'm free now. It's like, yeah, you're free to have a thousand devils plague you instead mm -hmm. of one tyrant. And and part of I'm sorry, go ahead, Austin. No, no, go ahead. Well, I think so I think so much about, right, in this day and age too, like what what balances, what moderation, what freedom feels like is somehow standing out on your own and being torn in 360 degrees equally. Mm -hmm. That's what freedom is mm -hmm. now. Mm -hmm. And it's so easy to try and move well, into that's a camp. Problem with the multiplicity of identities. It's an, and so that beckons as freedom. Well, now you can be anything you want. It's like, oh my God. But to anything do, right, I want? But part of that is, is you pull into the cover of one thing or another. But I think if you're truly standing on your own in, in a culture that doesn't remotely reward that, you're torn equally, right? So freedom's painful in some regards. But you're back to the Dylan. You've got to serve somebody. Right. Whereas the modern autonomy, you serve no one. That's why you need the guardrails. An incumbent self. Mm -hmm. You need the guardrails, the rituals, the ceremonies. Well, that's why children need that the predictability. Or yeah. they just they just wear themselves to a frazzle. They misbehave. They there's just no peace in a house where there's not mm. repetition and ritual. But to go back to James's thing, isn't Israel unique? Most nations conquer a land and then figure out their laws, and the people are formed before they get to the land, and that's part of it. In other words, there are three, if I understand Dennis right, three great moments. One, we've just liberation. Second, the covenant. And third, the tent of meeting. And when all those three are in place, there are people ready to go to their land. But that's very unusual. There are people formed before they get there. Well, it begs a question too, doesn't it? Because one of the things, there's a lurking question here is it's like, well, sure, the Israelites have just been freed from 
the tyranny of Egypt, and that's all great, but it doesn't look like it's all that good for the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Canaanites. No, but that's Canaanites, and so, yeah. mm -hmm, well, but, but, so, so this is being, our attention is being drawn to this repeatedly. It's like, well, what gives the Israelites the right to be going in there and taking the promised land from its current inhabitants? So well, we'll definitely to, come to you that. You have to go and back so, to Genesis 15 for that sort of thing. And it shall be... Wait, forgive me, what, what, is, what is the Genesis 15 answer? The Lord says you will not get the land until the iniquity, the no, wickedness. No, I didn't know, I, I was going to cite that, but I didn't remember it was Genesis. Well, yeah. that's right. The Lord says you won't they get the land get until the wickedness of the people in the land is full. So yeah, you get the important. idea. Oh, so you couldn't you're conquer in, them yes, even if that's right. you couldn't conquer them. And, and constantly, God's you're providence. not getting this because you're better than others or exactly. bigger than others. God says this to the Israelites constantly. But they're really awful, and and therefore there's, there is a moral justification. So there's a providential flip side. That's a tough one. And it shall be for a sign unto thee upon thine hand, and for a memorial between thine eyes, that the Lord's law may be in thy mouth. For with a strong hand hath the Lord brought thee out of Egypt. Thou shalt keep, therefore, this ordinance in his season from year to year. And it shall be when the Lord shall bring thee into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore upon to thee, as he swore unto thee and to thy fathers, and shall give it thee, that thou shalt set apart unto the Lord all that openeth the matrix. It's the first thing also that emerges out of potential, right? Yeah. Is to open the matrix is the first thing that emerges out of and the first thing is anomalous and special and unique because it's the first thing that emerges. So there's also that being emphasized there too. So, In the pagan nations, the firstborn was a matter of incredible male pride. Mm -hmm. And it's almost hitting it on the head. The firstborn here, you dedicate to the yeah, Lord. Yeah, well, you see this specialness of firstborns in families too because, well, it's the first child. And so that, that's that's even more remarkable than the next child in some sense because you've already had a child then and, and you know, not that you love the second child any less, but that that well, bloom of, of revelation, that's it in some sense. The bloom of revelation is off the second child. Well, because when, when you have a child and you cross the threshold of being a parent, your entire world and the universe is remade. Right, mm -hmm. right, 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 right. But you look in Genesis, it's very often the second child whom the Lord favors. Absolutely. Well, Always. because you have this you have yeah. this tension too. Abel, Abel over Cain. Right. Jacob, Joseph, no, that's right. Moses. But it's so Do you suppose that occurs when the firstborn isn't properly consecrated to God? So the firstborn becomes, well, the firstborn's often an icon of tyranny because he's privileged, because he's the firstborn. He can easily fall into an alliance yeah. with tradition because look at me, tradition favors me, therefore tradition is right. And it's, it's then when the second son becomes favored. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, that's, a, that's also, I, I think that's Adlerian too, right? I mean, it's like the first child fulfills the role in the family and it's like, well, what role's next when you're born next, right? It has to be something innovative or revolutionary. Right, right, right. You don't have a revolutionary first child like you would with Moses. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, there's some evidence for that in the research literature that firstborns tend to be more conservative. 
Yeah. And there's also the idea of pride, the idea of pride, like in the kind of mythological image of like the devil falling from heaven, you have a sense, you have these images where it says things like, you know, there was a jewel in his forehead, like this, Im- this images of the, of the highest angel falling. And so th- there's a notion also that the first, the, the sin of the first or the danger of the first mm-hmm. is pride. Right. right. So even St. Peter, Christ says, you know, it's like, you're the foundation and then get behind me, Satan, like right away, right after he says that, because that's the danger of the right. first. Well, and every firstling of an ass thou shalt redeem with a lamb. And if thou wilt not redeem it, that's a substitutionary uh, <coughs> yep. sacrifice. Yeah. Then thou shalt break its neck. So you have to give it up. And all the firstborn of men among thy children shalt thou redeem. You have to make a sacrifice. And it shall be when thy son asketh thee in time to come, saying, What is this? That thou shalt say unto him, By strength of hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of bondage. I guess a sacrifice of like that too, that is definitely something children would remember. Because yeah. a sacrifice that involves blood and death is not something that you would easily forget. Yeah. So it marks the importance to put something to death for something definitely marks its importance. And modern people can barely understand that because we're so abstracted away from death. And, you know, not that that's in all ways such a bad thing, but... And it shall be that when thy son asketh thee in time to come, saying, What is this that thou shalt say unto him? By strength of hand, the Lord brought us out from Egypt, from the house of bondage. And it came to pass, when Pharaoh would hardly let us go, that the Lord slew all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of beast. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all that open the matrix, being males, but all the firstborn of my children, I redeem. Yeah. But I think it's important, at least for me, this passage is very important because I, in, the, in the, the days preceding days, I tried to say that there's a dis- clear link between the death of the Egyptians and the sacrifice of the firstborn. And I think this passage shows it very clearly. It says, when your children ask you, say, God killed the firstborn of the Egyptians. Now, therefore, you sacrifice your firstborn and, and you redeem them. But there's a relationship between in the text. Clearly. And you redeem them with a substitutionary yeah. sacrifice. And I think that that has to do with this idea that if you voluntarily give up, then God will let the world exist. God, God, that's how the world exists. And so God gives it back to you. There's a, um, I wanted to say something about sacrifice, because uh, there's a sense in which you can read this as if, I don't know, God is taking away something that's yours. Um, my wife and I had an experience, I hope it's all right to share kind of a personal story recently with long wanted children, but not blessed with children and sort of getting beyond the childbearing years. and. Anyway, suddenly uh, my wife became pregnant and uh, a test and then another test and then went to the doctor and still, indeed, there, there it was. Uh, it seemed a miracle. And then the next week, an ultrasound and there's a heartbeat. And it just seemed just this miracle. Um, the next week, the heartbeat was gone. There was no, you know, no, well, that life that had been was, was gone. Of course, it's very... Sad for us, um, but I was just so thinking about this. You know, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. I mean, we have no right to children. So children are a gift. Uh, we have no right even to our own lives in a way. Even our own lives are a gift. And so this notion of sacrifice, really it's just giving back what you were given already. It's, it's not, uh, it's, 
It's not as though you make a deal with God in some way that you, know, you give him what was yours, a little bit of it, or the best of it. No, 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 no. You're only giving back to God what was God's. Mm -hmm. That's nice. Thank you, Stephen. Yeah. yeah. I want to say, I want to say something here. I, I've been trying to avoid too much, let's say, doing the Christian parallel, but I think because Passover for the Christians is extremely important, Pascha is the, the main feast of the Christian church. And I'd like to just point to how Christians have brought this into their story, both in a very different way, but in ways that are connected directly to the story. <clears throat> and so on Passover, Christ offers the bread and the blood. The, the, the bread and the blood of the Passover uh, on the doors of the lintel become the, the, the wine that Christ offers as His blood and the bread that Christ offers as well. And the difference is that in the Passover of the Christians, there's only one firstborn that dies, right? And that is Christ. And that is very strange because he is the sacrifice. He offers his, the, the bread and the blood as the Passover sacrifice. And then when the Spirit passes, he is the only one who dies. And so that is the manner in which we understand the, the finality, let's say, of the, of the Passover sacrifice as, as, as being that. So it's, it's, he, he is both the, the redemption, the protection, and the firstborn in a very strange way, almost as the Egyptian child that gets taken, but also as the self-offering uh, because he is killed by the, the stranger. He's also the, 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 Egypt, the, the Israelite thrown into the river. He's all those things kind of captured together because he's killed by the Romans, right? The Romans are in the story of Jesus at the time of Jesus, like the Egyptians. Mm -hmm. And so he's both self-offered, but also killed. He is the, the, the one who protects on the door, but is also the redemption sacrifice for all of us. And so it all, all the symbolism like crashes together in ways that just that is hard sometimes to fully account mm -hmm. for. Like even now, I know that I'm missing elements because the, it just it just it just seizes you. Well, it is a. I mean, at minimum, speaking secularly, it's a centralizing narrative, right? It's an attempt by the narrative imagination to bring all the elements of historical narrative into one right. place, whatever that means, and yeah. God only knows what that means. And it came to pass when Pharaoh would hardly let us go that the Lord slew all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and of beast. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all that opened the, the matrix, being males, but all the firstborn of my children I redeem. And it shall be for a token upon thine hand and for frontlets between thine eyes. I do not know what that means. That's tefillin in Jewish history. That's the, the boxes that you see on religious Jews when they pray, the black box at the forehead and the black box on the arm. They each contain uh, a portion of the Torah on parchment in those boxes. There are two examples of this. This is called tefillin. In English, it's phylacteries. I never met any human who knew what phylacteries was who didn't know what tefillin was. So it's a, a useless translation. <laughs> but that's what it is. It's those I boxes. See. So this is another injunction to remember. Yes. But uh, the proof that it's physical, because some Jews have taken it as metaphorical and many Christians have taken it as metaphorical. Christians don't wear tefillin, obviously. Uh, it took me a while to realize, and you don't know this until you're in Deuteronomy, it follows the law of the mezuzah, the, uh, what you put on the doorpost, which is also a parchment of the Torah. Mm -hmm. So there is uh, a mezuzah on your body and a mezuzah on your doorpost. This is the mezuzah 
on your on your body. Okay, so this is an this is an instruction to remember. So then you might think, well, you're remembering here the spirit that brought you out of tyranny. When we're enjoined upon to never forget the Holocaust, are we enjoined to never forget the Holocaust? Are we enjoined to never forget the spirit, the nature of the spirit that overcame the Nazis? Like, what's the proper remembering there? That's it. It's my my answer will disappoint you, but I think it's to remember the horror, because we don't want to. Free, it's really remember the six million. I know that, that's that, I know that, that's how it's construed. That's how right? it's construed. Well, there's right, no then obviously then the there's no Torah law with regard to the Holocaust. You're stuck in the atrocity of the past. Then that's the and, and, I, and so then I'm wondering is that is that the proper remembering in the biblical sense? Because what you're told here is in to some real sense that is God took you out. It's that's a very, right. It's a great to, question. To remember I never the thought spirit of, it. of that which took you mm-hmm. out. You know? Well, I guess I guess Jews aren't quite prepared yet, maybe over the course of generations, to say God took the Jews out of out of Hitler's Europe. It's hard to say, given the staggering number who were murdered. Right. Well, I think it's a mistake not to. It's also a mistake not to remember the horror, because you also want to appreciate the depths of the tyranny. Right. And then, if something How could, if something could overcome could even that, what must it be? I, I, I like. I think we should remember both. You, you, you've affected this Jew. That's uh, a very powerful point. Well, you know, I st- spent a lot of time studying the Holocaust, and what I learned from it wasn't the misery, mm-hmm. although I learned that. Mm-hmm. It was that something overcame the misery. And what was it that overcame the misery? Well, that's what we're all trying to figure out, Dennis. Really. I mean, really. That's what we're all trying to figure out. Well, the whole injunction was, remember, so it doesn't happen again. Okay, remember what? Remember the misery? Or remember, remember the spirit of Solzhenitsyn, or do you remember the spirit of Viktor Frankl, right? Do you, is it, what is what, is what we're remembering that which enabled us to overcome the tyranny and the malevolence? It's got to be that, because we can't just remember the well, terror. it was allied tanks that overcame the tyranny. Yeah, well, that's also something, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. That's yeah. why I'm a, I'm a tank fan. Right, <laughs> right, right, right. I think you remember, too, the horror of how humans can descend. Absolutely. Absolutely. To me, me, that question calls back the conversation we had, I think, two sessions ago when we were talking about needing to occupy all the players in a narrative, right, where we're all the pharaoh, we're all parts of it. And to me, remember, yes, it means that, that, that that was overcome, but part of it is also in remembering not just the horror, but the way that man descended and to know that that could be us. Those were humans who did that, just like we could be. And in the remembering of that, as we were saying, like the one thing I think that gives you a shot, we've talked about this, it may be being somebody who would have acted out against that, that level of organized, systemic, um, social, Malevolence. Malevolence is if you have an awareness that that could be of you. Mm-hmm. And so the remembering of all of those parts is the remembering to avoid it so it won't happen again. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, that, well, that's the purpose of remembering, remembering trauma from a clinical perspective. It isn't so you don't forget the trauma. It's so that you remember the trauma, but you figure out your way through it. And then really, the, it's, this is literally the case. The salvific memory of a trauma is the root out. If you don't have a root out, you, the memory isn't there because in some sense, what the memory is, is the encapsulation of the trauma. But without it being a way out, without it being a way forward, the memory doesn't work. You're still immersed in the chaos of the 
trauma. So the memory, so that's a very interesting thing to think about, that memory itself has a redemptive structure. Because you see, we don't remember the past so that we remember the past. We, re, we do not, that's not the function of memory. The function of memory is to remember the past so you don't repeat stupid mistakes. Mm -hmm. And so, and that fright that is that scrambling of your neurological pathways in your nervous system that the trauma is encoded because it's like however you've been humming along before this didn't get you to a place that you could avoid this trauma. Right, right. So it's exactly. a massive shakeup through your cells, and then you have to reorder them and reconstitute them, or else well, you're just stuck. If in you it. can, that's right. It's very, very difficult, right? Especially because that the more traumatic a trauma is the more it undoes simultaneously. And so the more rebuilding that has to take place and the more radical rebuilding it has to be. And part of that is, is that issue that we're talking about of, of like increasingly as I, as I you know, enter into a semblance of maturity as I get older, I, I, I tend to think more about the importance of procedure than of getting words right. <laughs> And so mm -hmm. with trauma, a lot of stuff that people talk about now, whether it's body work, whether it's, right, it used to be that the talking cure, and there's a place for all of this. I'm not like denigrating one at the expense of others, but there's a necessity of calming your your body and your system. There's there's a necessity to calm the procedural state of your body. Well, right? and, and merely, re we know from the clinical literature, merely recounting and re-experiencing the trauma is not curative. In fact, if it happens to you accidentally, which is what happens in the course of obsessive thinking, it's thrust upon you in some sense, it just makes it worse. We also know that when people rush in, ill-informed clinicians rush in immediately after a trauma to have everybody talk about it, all that does is make it worse. What do you think about the idea of ritualized memory? Because one of, I, I, there's a book called The... the the Ethics of Beauty, I've told you about this book, where what he does in that book is he looks at the man in which the Greeks read the Iliad. And he said what, the ha what would happen is the Greeks would go to war and they would kill and they would see horror and they would see all this thing. And when they would return, before they would re-enter the world, they would read together the Iliad in a ritual process. So it's like, a, it's a memory of all the horrors we went through, which is now filtered through this, this story led, yeah. and led into- Jonathan, that's exactly yeah. what you do if you treat right. People have post-traumatic stress disorder as a consequence of encountering their own malevolence when they were soldiers. So maybe remembering the horror like the, of, of Egypt through the Passover itself, like through this ritualized memory, mm -hmm. is a way in which not only to remember the horror, but to remember it in a way that is transformational yeah, for, yeah. for the I think people. That's, I think that's right. I think and, that's right. And the loss of those structures, right? So Sebastian Younger wrote an amazing book about trauma and war, right? And since World War II, the rates of PTSD have skyrocketed, even accounting for the fact that people didn't know what PTSD was. And so war for a lot of people is, the, is simultaneously the most meaningful and horrifying experience of their life because there's men in going out in sort of packs like for the hunt, right? You're eating and sleeping together. There's an immense sense of meaning. With World War II, everyone came home to a unified narrative and people had, there was a story, a there was ticker tape. enemy. And, and support, meaning there was like, you know, men's church groups and there was, you, the, all these structures were in place. And as we're increasingly fragmented, it's not like people are seeing more war who are drone pilots than on Iwo Jima, yeah. but yet these instances of fragmentation are greater because the orientation of meaning is no longer in place. And so the disintegration of these different structures that we have, they, part of that is seeding and storing. Well, that, that, those disintegration of those structures is, in some real sense, the disintegration of the memory that guides you into the future. And it is the yeah. disintegration of the 
Exodus story because part of a shared vision of the future is a representation of the land of milk and honey and a justification for your actions against what is it the Hizites and the yeah. and the Moabites and and there's no way to come home without it you don't come home like how do you come home from there Vietnam isn't even a home right there's no structure and so when you used to come home at least there were these similar groups and packs to reorient you but if you come home and everyone's on their phone and everything's fragmented and there's no fellowship then you well then you come home to a war that's right. And you come home to like a complete, like all you have is the horror of what you live with and the absence of a pack of people yeah, with and, whom you had complete, meaning. And complete moral confusion about whether or not your placement in that terrible situation had any justification whatsoever. And then you then you don't know if you're just as bad as the enemy who was so bad that it was okay to try to kill him. So, yeah. I and just, it's I so strange, you know, the, when, you, when uh, you talk to people in a clinical practice and you get down to the deepest levels it always takes on religious significance. That always happens. In fact, that's how you know that you're at the deepest level. And when you're talking to people about trauma, you're talking about to them about order and chaos and good and evil. And, and the, that language automatically emerges in their language. And that doesn't, doesn't matter if they're secular or not. I'd just so, like to go back to a point you made about why remember the past. So I, have, I, I do, I think I have a, sl a slightly different take I feel that if we don't, we have trivialized the victims' lives. Yeah, well, that's definitely a mistake, right? So we have to understand so that it was genuinely a sacrifice, right? And, and right. worse. Yes, and worse, right. I, I know um, I, in my own life, aside from visiting Holocaust sites, I, I purposely went with my wife to uh, Cambodia, to the killing fields. I don't, I don't, I don't know any Cambodians, but... I, I just I think I think every parent should take their kids to one of these things because the the romantic optimism about about life that you can develop in the in the easy life of the West and not know what people have gone through. I mean, when I think 60 to 80 million Chinese starved by by Mao and we don't know any of their names, it, it's it's. It bothers me a lot. It's you know, I, I had a lot more romantic optimism about life after studying the Holocaust than before. Because I think what you have before, it's not romantic optimism, it's just naivety. And, you know, what I became convinced of by studying the Nazi camps and, and the Gulag, etc., and not just that, was that the spirit that triumphs over that is more powerful than the spirit that produces it. And that's really what we're supposed to remember, right? And then to enact. And part, certainly part of this is a call to that. So, I, I love hearing And I think, it, I Dennis, Dennis, I think that also means that there is no minimization of the suffering of the victims because you don't get to the observation that the spirit that can triumph over that is the triumphant spirit unless you have some sense of how absolutely catastrophically effective that spirit of desolation, let's say, and abomination actually was. You have to give the devil his, his full due to appreciate the strength of that which overcomes them. And maybe that's also why we have the Pharaoh, Pharaoh's heart hardening continually. Well, it's he like, keeps now saying, this is really the devil. And he keeps here. saying, like, I'm doing this so that my wonders will shine on right, Egypt. Like, right, my right. wonders and my miracles will shine. Like, as if, it's like, I want you to see that despite how harsh and how horrible the Pharaoh is, that I will prevail. Yeah. And it came to pass when Pharaoh had let the people go that God led them not through the way of the land of the Philistines although that was near. For God said, 
lest, peradventure, the people repent when they see war and they return to Egypt. Mm. I think that's so funny. Mm. It's, yeah, well, yeah. It, it, like, it also shows you the fragility of, the, of this first But endeavor. I love that, like, everything that's been accomplished, and it's like, well, we better not expose them to war. Right. Right. Yeah. And, like, right. it's, yeah. it's not scare like, them back into the tyranny. Right. Or that God can't triumph over that. Like, it's, very, it's a very interesting... It's, yep, it's the key thing. And, and God, it's the key thing that people uh, do, uh, that faith lasts a very short period of time. That, that's so important for people who, oh, I, you know, if only, I, I, I mentioned this earlier, forgive me, you know, if God would sneeze, just, just say hello to me, or just, you know, shake this table up and down and say God exists. It's not true. It's, uh, so we have to work to believe in God. Yeah. You have to, everything good is done through work. That's, sacri- that's the sacrificial motif. Oh, that's great. Right, right. That's yet, the sacrificial motif. And yet motif. God's also responsive to the emotional makeup of human beings. So hu- human situations make a difference. God will adjust himself right, but, to but particular that, that's also true. I think, situations. I think that's true, James, when, when you sacrifice your pride. Mm-hmm. Right, that happens, and and that's that's I get a bit of a nod to God the Butler. It's like, well, can you get can you get a revelation from the divine? Well, it depends to the degree to which you're willing to sacrifice to work, and maybe that's an indication of your faith. But you definitely can get a revelation of what's outside your domain of understanding if you're willing to sacrifice your pride. You say, and you can think about this in a secular way. You've been brought low, and you accept that I'm wrong. There has to be something different than this. What is it? Well, you'll, maybe you won't discover it if you ask that, but you absolutely won't discover it if you don't ask. So, But all along we've seen the Lord has to demonstrate himself to the Egyptians, but he's also got to prove himself as Lord to the Israelites. Mm-hmm. And the and slavish mentality that they have of long captivity... And you take the difference between the greatest generation and the me decade and so on. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're dealing with pretty rough material here. Yeah, well, it's not obvious that the Israelites were any I mean, you said it to took convince. a long time, but they could mm-hmm. have got there in a week mm-hmm. if they'd been in good condition. Mm-hmm. Right, right, right. But God led the people about through the way of the wilderness of the Red Sea, and the children of Israel went up harnessed out of the land of Egypt. And Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. So that's his ancestors. For he had straightly sworn the children of Israel, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones away hence with you. Can I just quickly comment on that, Jordan? There's, there's, a, you know, there's a real sense, of course, in which this is the, a, a new beginning. Uh, but here we're also reminded that it's not the beginning. And... It's so interesting just at a literary level, right? Because I know you've given these wonderful lectures on Genesis. I mean, Joseph is sold into Egypt by his brothers, right? I mean, he's, he's betrayed mm-hmm. by his brothers, sold into the Egypt. First but it actually, Egyptian slave or Israelite slave in Yes, but it actually turns out that that was for the salvation of his brothers and the whole uh, people of Israel when he reveals himself because of the famine in the land, right? And it's, and it's only because Joseph rises to prominence in Egypt that he's able to gather his whole family, his brothers and all of the family into Egypt to protect them 
from, from the, the starvation that would happen if he weren't, had not been sold into Egypt. And it's been that and beautiful he, well, scene. he saves the Egyptians too. Well, yes, and the Egyptians as well. And that beautiful scene where he reveals himself to his brothers. He says, now therefore be not grieved nor angry with yourselves that you sold me hither, for God did send me before you to preserve life. Let's not forget that he's talking about being in Egypt was they were there to have their to have life preserved and i think this is so of course there's this beautiful literary moment where now where now, now joseph's bones are being carried out of egypt but there's this profound sense in which you know you don't you, things are not what they seem uh, and that's why yeah and that's why a, well I, then you'd say too that the repetition of these narratives and it's kind of relevant to the retelling of 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 the greek story that you referred to is that the narratives are there to remind you to maintain faith in what is good despite the variability of the present, right? It's like, just just remember the whole story. Remember the whole story yes. at each moment and, and don't let yourself be swayed by the the catastrophe of the present. Yes, and this, this, this having this whole story before us, it's, there's a wonderful theologian who describes memory as a horizon of coherence, right? And so, you know, the enactment of this story, the telling of it, it, it it's, it's a creation of a world in which we're able to find ourselves in in the work of God, in the stability of the cosmos, however one wants to put it, but to locate ourselves and thus have ourselves made in the likeness of or live in relation to uh, that goodness as revealed. Dennis, you were talking about work in relationship to faith, and you might say as well that there's actually no difference between work and faith because you work for the hypothetical future. That's what makes it work. If you're just... If you're engaged in the present and the present is rewarding in and of itself right at the moment, that's play. Work is faith because it's the manifestation of faith because you're assuming that the sacrifice of your time now and your effort is serving a higher end of some sort, but, but not right now, obviously, because otherwise it's not work. And so the sacrificial motif is crucial in that regard. And you could say, well, faith requires proof of work. So I couldn't, I think it's a beautiful way of putting it. My own more, more even literal is I think a lot of people today think, and I think it's partially the problem of some religious people who have made, allowed them to think this way. God will appear to you. You don't have to seek him. Mm -hmm. And that's a huge mistake. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh, so you Do you agree that that's no, a mistake? Yeah, yes. Okay. Yes. And all of well, you. Well, humility just... is a precondition for revelation. That's that's true at the secular level. Yeah, and Christ said, "Search and, and you will find." Like right, it's right, not right. Just knock passive. and the door will open. Yeah, we're yeah. not just passive uh, waiting mm -hmm. to so, be served. Yeah, to be served. By right. God. This is a trivial point. Never seen it before, Dennis. But presumably, all the other heads of the tribes are buried in, in Egypt. I never no, thought only, of that. Only Joseph gets out. I never thought of that before. No. So, so what, what do you <laughs> think? That was a great significance. The book of ironies. Well, J amazing. Right? Yeah, well, that's right. Well, so Jonathan's <laughs> comment is that he was the first. He's the first slave. So he's he's the he's the type of the slave, then you'd say. And and he's been carried And he's the father. Like, all the other fathers aren't in Egypt, right? Uh, Abram and Isaac are not in Egypt. But the, the father that is in Egypt, the father that brought us Egypt, all of this is like the beginning. So we're taking it with us. Only know? a slave needs to be liberated. Wait, so where did you get that the, the, the heads of all the tribes are buried in Egypt? Is that well, in the that, text or uh, is it? Uh, no, not literally, but only Joseph asked to come out. 
And they carry right, his bones out the, and so on. Oh, oh, you mean the, the ancient hell, the original right. hell? Yes. Oh, 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 I, I like the Zebulun and so on. Oh, I see. Mm-hmm. And they took their journey from Sukkoth and encamped in Etham at the edge of the wilderness. Okay, now they're at the edge. Now they're, now they're going into the unknown. That right at when they're going into the unknown, then you have the pillar of cloud and the pillar of the fire. The two pip, so that's where they encounter the, the yin-yang pillars in some sense is at the edge of the known. Now that's exactly where they exist because that's the border between chaos and order. And so now the thing that guides them is the balance between the pillar of fire and the pillar of... And the, yeah, the two pillars are very important. I think if you just want to, if you know that your Bible, to think of the places where there are two pillars. We'll see it later in the story of Moses when he defeats the Amalekites. These two ramparts, you could say, like this, how the world separates into two feet, two legs, two pillars, is 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 very important to understand the, how opposites are joined well, so, into it's one. So, it's so striking too. I, I never knew this before. You offered your interpretation the other day. Is that? What you have in day is a speck of, of dark, the pillar of cloud, and what you have at night is a speck of light, and that is exactly the yin-yang motif. And so, and the thing that's so interesting about that is that the, the, the neurological, uh, what would you say, interpretation of that is in sense is, when is your sense of intrinsic meaning most heightened? And the answer is, it's always heightened when you're on the border between two opposites, because if it's just the thing itself, it's boring, and if it's just the chaos, it's terrifying. And when it's meaningful, it's right in the middle. It's the balance of opposites. And that implies in this text, like it does in the Taoist notion, that it's that intrinsic sense of meaning that's the unerring guide when you're on the edge of the wilderness and then through the desert. That's, that's, so now you, that's so interesting because it brings together the notion that God is the spirit that pulls us all out of tyranny, and then it unites it with this image of the balanced opposites. Mm. That's something, man. Mm. They're still in tyranny. I mean, they've left Egypt, but they're still under the sway of, of Pharaoh. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, they're just on the edge here, mm-hmm. eh? So Exodus... Well, they left, they've left Egypt. I think they leave Egypt. Yeah, the they leave it. Now they're in the, the, the wilderness. They're in the wilderness this, of, uh, of, yeah. of the Red Sea. But so it's still chaos. Before so. the Red Sea, they're like, mm. it's, they're in a transition period. Mm-hmm. It's, it's part of the crossing of the Red Sea as well. Like all of this is this, this final transition that, that's going to reveal the new creation. By the way, this is, since we're between chapters, maybe this is how I think, so mm. forgive me. Is there a secular equivalent to what we are doing this week? A seminar in the humanities courses yeah. on a great book, hypothetically. Like an analysis, like in a, a Shakespeare seminar. So for you think that, that they're, uh, I'm, I'm not challenging you. I'm just, it's, it's a, I always try to juxtapose. So you feel that there are six, seven scholars, thinkers gathered together for a week uh, discussing a Shakespeare play. No, you'd have well, a, a students doing that together with someone. But yeah. no, this is this yeah. is this so, isn't common. I've never done right, anything so like that's this before. Right. So that uh, it's an argument I just want to make for those watching and listening. I don't think we're just recreating the old sec- Jewish tradition, Dennis. Oh, I'm totally with that. I I, I do this every Friday night, basically, <laughs> and Saturday. Uh, but uh, uh, but I I just. Religion extracts things from people that secularism doesn't. 
That's that's the only point that I want to make. It's like the other one. Well, I don't need a Sabbath. I, I could have a family night every Monday, but you won't. If God is not behind it, and, and I think God is behind this for us in, in different ways. I'm, I'm more literal. It doesn't matter. But for all of us, God is deeply involved in this text. That's what animates our passion to do this. Well, serious it, times require serious study, Dennis. So that's what we're trying to do. Oh, I know. At but least I, we're trying I, I don't to think secular texts, that's all I'm saying, and I love Shakespeare, evokes the passion and interest that this does. I think there's a Dennis Thoreau? There are some. The Aspen Institute, for example, has four curriculum on the American founding. And that was actually the model behind the Trinity Forum. And we had seven curriculum on all the great themes of the West. So it, it is happening in small ways. Yeah. And, and did you have teams of scholars? Who no, not scholars. Down? We had 20, 25 business and political leaders. Uh -huh. Square table uh -huh. and very deep and, and going through the texts. Yeah, uh -huh. there's uh -huh. a tradition at Oxford in Cambridge around about Easter that you would uh, professors would take some of their you know best students away for a week, and there would be a sort of regular routine to the day, private work in the morning, and then you would gather over afternoon tea, of course, at four o'clock after a long walk in the mountains or the hills, and you would settle down around around a text. Um, but it wasn't, there wasn't a sense, there's not rarely a sense in, in those sorts of reading groups that you are, um, that you have to exercise the kind of humility that I think a text like this demands of you. This is sort of the sheer difficulty of doing what we're doing, deciphering the text, getting the, the hermeneutics right, getting the history right, the ceremonial aspects right, the philosophy right, the psychology right. And yeah, well, the humility is what allows you to get the wheat. Mm. It's like, because if you're superior, it's like, well, here's why Shakespeare mm. is chaff. Mm. It's like, he was misogynist, he was bigoted, he was mm. racist. It's mm. like, well, now mm. that's it. No more Shakespeare. Well, I mean, fine th for you. This but. is something the Greek fathers like to come back to again and again, that actually the, the, the cloud, the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire, uh, and, and the pillar of fire are, are really metaphors for the difficulty of the, the, the sort of combination between the accessibility and the difficulty of scripture, that, that God, as it were, and God himself, the talk and thought about God, God is clouded, as it were, is in a cloud of unknowing. It's, it's difficult to, to understand him, difficult to uh, think about his and nature. And like fire in the night. Do you think that's what it is here? Well, I, I think sure that there are, it's a matter of guidance and protection. Uh, but it's also a matter of a divine, divine transcendence. It's a story. You've got yeah. uh, absolutely. So I think you know there are there are. Right. But the he's four. not a bunny rabbit leading them the, through the desert. No, no, he's like a uh, pillar of fire uh, uh, and a uh, pillar of clouds. Just, so. just, just, just so just to be clear, I mean that, that there's a there's a sort of there's the literal sense, a historical sense, there's an anagogical sense, there's a there's a moral sense of scripture, there's a typological sense of scripture. Just saying that the fathers, I think, were within their hermeneutical rights to understand this both as signifying as long as you begin i agree i couldn't agree more mm -hmm. there's definitely gu there's and, the guidance issue is yeah, crucial and, and in fact those interpreters would always say it must first and foremost be it's the historical and the literal and then unless metaphor is licensed within the text itself but but it's perfectly justifiable to kind of anchor as, as jonathan's been doing others have been doing so well yeah i have a thought about what you just said about what's different. And so what's interesting for me is what this is. So first of all, it's very, it's very humbling for me to be here because the level yes, it of- should be. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> that's partly why you were invited. That's right. Just for the humbling, man. It's true. It's true though. I mean, 
But, you know, there's such a range of knowledge and wisdom in these particular areas that I don't, I just simply don't have. But what's so interesting when you said that, I was thinking about that. And one of the things that's different from sitting down and doing like an intense uh, seminar on Shakespeare or something else is that the extent to which everybody brings the fullness of their psychological, emotional, and spiritual perspective. What's very interesting is it's a, it's a short distance in before I start thinking, well, that's a Pajot question, right? That's black. Okay, mm-hmm. Prager. We got to go to Prager on this. <laughs> but in the same way, if you're discussing the Tempest, always, you know, people have proclivities. But there's, and so for me, what it's almost like, I was thinking about this after the second seminar that we had, it's almost like there's a certain distance into writing a book for me where all the characters have different voices and you don't, you're not fully, I don't mean to sound precious about beckoning the muse and whatnot, but you don't want to have them nailed down. Like they start to have voices in different ways that aren't controllable, but in some, to some extent they're predictable. And it's very interesting how often in this, there's a lot of cross questions to different members of us about certain things. And that's almost immediately apparent. So there's a sort of totality of personality and and outlook and perspective that's brought to this discussion that's immediately apparent, right? That's something that like I might learn in the course of writing a book about characters. Or, or getting to know someone really well. Right. And you think that's brought out by this more than, let's say, Shakespeare. That yes. Is, that, that's yes. what you're saying. I think it would take longer with Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. I think if we were in a seminar and we went through Shakespeare, there'd be a point that we would settle into this. But there's such but an immediacy. Quick, more, mm, well, yeah, I, think I think this right. affects us individually more than Shakespeare affects Shakespearean scholars individually. Yeah. I think that that's part of what I was yeah, well, I, aiming I, I think for. it's perfectly reasonable mm. to make the case that this is a more foundational story. I yeah. mean, Shakespeare is yeah. foundational, but, no, 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 but absolutely. peripheral I, compared yes. to this. Yeah. Yes. But, but Shakespeare yeah. scholars don't celebrate these images every week, every year. Every, you know, they, right. don't, well, they don't, they don't live him. Yeah, they don't live him. We live this. But this is both personally foundational, but also historically right. foundational right. for our nations. Mm-hmm. And conceptually, well, and foundational for, for Shakespearean texts, let's say, as well. Yeah, and, so I it's under Shakespeare. and I don't live in this the same way that the rest of you do either. So it's in an in interesting way. It's like I'm being welcomed into this conversation differently. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's I'm, I'm alert to the differences. Back, back to the bones of your ancestors. That's right, that's Absolutely. right. All right, 14.1. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying... Speak unto the children of Israel that they turn and encamp before Piharoth, Piharoth, between Migdal and the sea, over against Balzephon. Before it shall ye encamp by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the children of Israel, they are entangled in the land. The wilderness hath shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart that he shall follow after them that I will be honored upon Pharaoh and upon all his host, that the Egyptians may know that I am the Lord. And they did so. So now they're, they're sort of, they're out of the state before the water. And that's, a, that's the final frontier in some sense to get, out of, to get out of what's really Egypt. But now they're also trapped. So it gives the Pharaoh his last chance. Mm. That, that seems right? Yeah, and, and he's then, going to pursue them. Like he's going to pursue them like he asked them to, you know, like he doesn't want to, there's no room. He doesn't want to leave room. He's going to pursue them like he asked them to work nonstop, right, no right, rest. Right. And that, but now it's in space. Now it's in, in time. He's going to get them all the way to the edge of the world and even try to cross over. But right. well, on the edge of the world, they're not going to cross it's over. It's the edge Pharaoh. of the dry land. And now they're yeah, at the chaos. Yeah, they're right. actually at the chaos. And they're, so they're trapped between the tyranny and the water. Yeah. And so that's when the Pharaoh can 
strike once yet, once again. Question for Dennis. Dennis, at verse four, I will harden the Pharaoh's heart and, uh, and I will be honored. To your point a few days ago, Cap, is, is the etymological, the verbal link there? Yeah, it it's, is. It's, that's the word. The one, right. the one I will cap, make cap. heavy yeah. or, or honor even. Right. Mm -hmm. right. Okay. Yeah. okay. And it was told the king of Egypt that the people fled and the heart of Pharaoh and his servants was turned against the people. And they said, why have we done this that we have let Israel go from serving us? So to your point, Dennis, they've forgotten the whole firstborn thing already. It's like, oh yeah, remember all our children died. Oh yeah, well, that was like yesterday, man. That ain't going to happen again. So, and he made ready his chariot and took his people with him. And he took 600 chosen chariots and all the chariots of Egypt and captains over every one of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued after the children of Israel. And the children of Israel went out with a high hand. What does that mean, that they went out with a high hand? Is it that because they were carrying treasure? Is it no. because they went no. out triumphantly? Anyone know? I think it's the high hand of God. Oh, do you? Yeah, well, well uh, what are you saying verse, in English, what verse high handedly? Yeah, mean, yeah. So yeah. Arrogant. Well, yeah, it does. High handed means yeah. arrogant. So. No, I, the, no? the, I, I may be Israel, right. It, it says may Israel well, goes out it, with a high hand. Yes. So, it, well, let's see. The he, so, uh, let's see. I, uh, by the way, if that verse does I, I not use right, me. I think you're right, Dennis, because the next line says, but yeah. the Egyptians pursued, but the Egyptians pursued after them. So despite the fact that, that the children God's of Israel hand, were, yes. yeah, okay, fine. Right. But the Egyptians pursued after them, all the horses and chariots of Pharaoh and his horsemen and his army and overtook them in camping by the sea, be, beside Pi-Hahiroth, before Bel-Zephon. And when Pharaoh drew nigh, the children of Israel lifted up their eyes. And behold, the Egyptians marched after them, and they were sore afraid. And the children of Israel cried out unto the Lord. And they said unto Moses, because there were no graves in Egypt, so. They weren't going to kill us in Egypt. Hast thou taken us away to die in the wilderness? Wherefore hast thou dealt thus with us to carry us forth out of Egypt? Is not the word that we did tell thee in Egypt saying, leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it had been better for us to serve thee in the, to serve the Egyptians than that we should die in the wilderness. Seems like a reasonable objection at this point. These were not Patrick Henry's uh, people. <laughs> give me liberty well, or give me Well, they're death. also, they don't have any arms fact, and they're, the they've got all their liberty, kids with them. It's like, live. but, but, but they've it's got a rough. The, for, the forgetfulness, you were saying that you know, the, the people of Egypt forget so easily yeah. the night before, but it's like, it was just yesterday or whatever that, you know, God delivered you from, you know, with the Passover. Right, but now, but, now but, but they're backed up against the ocean. That's a problem. They can't even retreat. And they have all their kids and their cattle and everything with them. And so and now this horde of just men and soldiers come advancing forward. Like they have reason. I'm not justifying, but they have reason to be shaky in their faith. But I think definitely there is a way in which there's a, the, the whole, 
the whole subject of memory is there through the whole text. And, and you will, and you see the difference, for example. So God says, remember, like here is the ritual. Remember this day. Know that this is your foundation. <coughs> the Pharaoh is constantly forgetting every single plague. He just forgets, 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 forgets. And now again, you can't believe it. His children are killed and, the, and he, right away he forgets and he's ready. He, he it's like he do There's the same thing over him. and over. There's nothing by So him not anymore. only is he a tyrant, he's impulsive. Right, so he's not—he's not even bound by a coherent tyranny. Yeah, he he's an incoherent he has, tyranny. He doesn't have the proper. And so is God. Mm -hmm. Well, yes, I would say so. The, the <laughs> Jews think God is an incoherent God mm -hmm. because all gods prior to this one were capricious. So when the Jews say, "Oh, what did he do? Take us, take us out of Egypt in order to drown us in the sea?" Other Jews, yeah, that's the way gods work. Right, right, right. And Moses said unto the people, Fear not, stand still, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he shall show you today. For the Egyptians whom ye have seen today, ye shall see them again no more forever. The Lord shall fight with you, for you. The Lord shall fight for you, and you shall hold your peace. And the Lord said unto Moses, Wherefore criest thou unto me? Speak unto the children of Israel, that they go forward. But lift up thy rod, and stretch out thine hand over the sea, and divide it. And the children of Israel shall go on dry ground through the midst of the sea. Right. That's a lovely phrase. Shall go on dry ground through the midst of the sea. So even though chaos is everywhere, chaos is immediate, and threatens with the risk of drowning, the children of Israel, those are who wrestle with God, shall go on dry ground through the midst of the sea. That's, that's different than escaping from tyranny even, because now they're also being transported on dry ground through chaos itself. Well, I mean, the world exists through in chaos. I mean, even even the pre-cosmogonic idea, right? There are waters above and waters below, and there's the world in between. Mm -hmm. And so this this image is is slightly different, but there's the idea that there's waters on one side, waters on the other, and then that which is ordered in the center. It is it is it is referring directly to Genesis mm -hmm. and talking about this new creation which is happening right now. That's why when when the wind comes, it's like here's the spirit of God and here's the the, here's the earth coming out of yeah. the sea. The waters get separated in Genesis. <coughs> again, it's the creation motif and the redemption motif being interwoven, okay. just uh, two at the same time. Okay. And I, behold, will harden the hearts of the Egyptians, and they shall follow them, and I will get me honor upon Pharaoh, and upon all his host, upon his chariots, and upon his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord, when I have gotten me honor upon Pharaoh, upon his chariots, and upon his horsemen. So the Lord is now shown to be that which is triumphant even over the well-armed tyrant, well-armed and disciplined tyrant in this case, because he has his Egyptian chariots and his soldiers. And the angel of God, which went before the camp of Israel, removed and went behind By the way, them. Malach, uh, the Hebrew for angel, means messenger. And just as the word for prophet means spokesman, just see, it's okay. worth knowing. Yeah. It's not the, necessarily a celestial being. And the, okay, okay. And the messenger of God, the angel of God, which went before the camp of Israel, removed and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud went from before their face and stood behind them. And it came between the camp of the Egyptians and the camp of Israel, and it was a cloud and darkness to them. 
So why was it the pillar of so the you, cloud? You, so you have to understand that they're, they're standing between two pillars. Just think of it that way. It's like they're, they, Israel is standing between two pillars. Those two pillars are holding the, the Egyptians away, right? So think about it in architectural terms, right? These two things that are holding up Think about the cosmic pillars that are holding up the, the, the heavens. And so because they're properly positioned between these two pillars, they're also resistant that's to right. the tyrant. Yeah. Okay, okay, Here okay. So that, well, that's exactly what happens with this yin-yang motif in yeah. some sense. If you're that's at right. the center where it's meaningful, <clears throat> you're immune to tyranny. Hmm. That is the thing that makes you immune to tyranny, hmm. in fact. Yeah. Because yeah. it's the only medication for tyranny and for chaos simultaneously. So. And weirdly, it's the marking of the blood on the pillars of the door. Mm. It's another threshold. I think the two pillars of, yeah, I think we, yeah, mm. oh, so it makes mm-hmm. sense. <coughs> it's also, it's, the, it's not the world that changes, right? It's, it's, it's us that changes, it's our vision that changes. So, you know, it's, in a certain sense, you know, it might be the same force that is the darkness of the light, just as it's the same force that, that, that kills and spares. I mean, God's justice is not different from his mercy, right? So it's, it's, it's the same fundamental reality perceived yeah. from different <coughs> it might it might also be you know that that to stand between those two pillars if that's assimilated to the to the lintel with the blood on top is that there's there's this there's this every act that's meaningful has a sacrifice a sacrificial element in it because to be on that edge of learning let's say means you have to be willing to give up what you don't know all the time and so maybe there is a deep analogy between the 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 lintels and the sacrificial blood and the the idea of being between the two columns what makes sense architecturally it's got got to be a parallel but i also i want to say like this might seem like because sometimes we we make these analogies and they 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 might seem like wild speculation but it's really important that the analogies are taken from the the text Mm -hmm. right so and the repeated it's the repetition which makes you able to see the analogy so when i say the israelites are protected from the egyptians between two pillars a pillar of fire and a pillar of water and you're like okay okay jonathan but then just when they leave when they cross the sea and they fight the amalekites the story is repeated. Now Moses stands in the middle and you have you have her and you have Joshua, two pillars standing next to him, holding his hands up so that they can win against the Amalekites. And so it's like, and that will continue to repeat itself all through scripture, this image of the two so pillars. So you know, okay, so by the fact that it's a, it's instantiated into a pattern that's re- repeated, you know it's a reality. Yeah, Just you like can the see, ritualization of something. And when you see it repeated all through scripture, then you can start to see how those repetitions coalesce towards a meaning. So then when you look back now into the example, you're like, oh, this is a repetition of this, 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 right, this, so this. So it's not an anomaly. It's, it's not, not It's not like something that we're making up to make it sound poetic. It's like this so is... So that's actually, that's actually a rejoinder <laughs> to the Sam Harris school of... of of biblical text. Yeah, no, because Sam Harris would watch this and go, they're just making all this stuff up, right. just taking this from wherever. But right. no, no, no. Well, this but is the a- other thing you know, too, if you do anything like dream analysis, say, with, with clinical clients, you think, well, dreams, what do you know? You analyze them. How do you know your analysis isn't just another dream? And the answer to that often is, well, they strike them. It's like, you just can't utter a jumble of words and your client says, well, that's what the dream means. They go like this. There's like, there's a revelatory quality if you strike the image right. And we don't know what that consists of. Like, how is it that you determine that the interpretation of something is correct? Part of what you're suggesting, there is this moment of inspiration that people feel that's well studied in the psychological literature, but you're also suggesting that we derive it by induction from a series of repetitions. And that's what helps us determine whether 
something is anomalous or if it's an actual a valid interpretation. You need that makes sense. That makes sense. Well, it also okay. stitches together what is an vast library of texts, right? Uh, mm. There are just and, and it gives well, it a unifying a unifying plot, unifying structure. Right. And it wouldn't be a text. It wouldn't be a story if it didn't have some of that quality of repetition. It yeah. would just be random aggregation of words even yeah yeah and, and then then it becomes kind of proleptic forward-looking when you reread it the the symbols are freighted with anticipation of how they're going to be instantiated later on in the narrative right right well and you see i've seen pictures of the bible cross-referenced so like every verse is cross-referenced with like 40 other verses and so that that sense of repetition in some sense saturates the text the words the phrases the sentences yeah. everything i mean it's so, so much like you know when so so, so when it says that, that uh, he said, tell the, 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 the Israelites, like, have no fear. Uh, they're standing next to the water and, the, and the, 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 the Pharaoh is coming. It's like, that's what Jesus said when he came into the water and walked on water and saw the, the, the disciples freaking out. So it's like every single word, for example, in the New Testament is taken directly from, it's always taken from the Old Testament. If you know the Old Testament, all of a sudden the New Testament shines because it's like Jesus says something. It's like, he's also referring to this other thing that's bad. It's not just, just it's not just, he obviously he did say that, but he's so embedded in the, all these stories that it. You know, I, I know. Never understand, and you, uh, I'm massively sympathetic to, to, to Christianity, especially in our time. And I believe if it, if it fails, we're all doomed. So I just wanted to preface this question. I don't understand when uh, Christians give out Bibles and they will only give the New Testament. Do, do you agree with that question? Let's give the Jews uh, a good whack. Oh, is that is that the subtext? <laughs> well, maybe that's well, part of the subtext. I never thought about that, Dennis, because I mean, Marcion, this uh, figure in the second century, is famously condemned as a heretic because he wanted to eliminate get, the Old get, get rid of the Old Testament and I think reduce and just just have you know ten ten books in the New Testament. And so I've never really thought of that. The New Testament sometimes the Psalms get in. Which uh -huh. I think okay, Jesus quotes more than Dennis, any part other book, of it but is the sheer volume of the whole right, thing. Right. It's just so too big. Yeah, it, a lot it's of people uh -huh. are overwhelmed. Yeah, so people, I try to read the Bible. So people that are atheists and they come and they say, "I just open the Bible." Like, never, don't do that. So just open the Bible, end up in Leviticus, and read something, and then right, it's like, no, no, oh my right. goodness, right. Okay, well, it's, uh, <laughs> there are challenges in every book. Yeah. By the way, didn't Luther want to get rid of? Um, James. James. Yes. Okay, so this fit his theology. Okay, so like we need to do something. Works. It's works. Yeah. It's works. Yeah, yeah. Isn't that amazing? That's yeah. amazing. Okay, we need to do something here because we're running out of time Sorry. today. I'm going to read to the end of 14, All right. and then we'll be set up for tomorrow. We'll go back because I don't want to skip over it, but then we can finish with 14, and that'll be a nice ending point. So. And it came between the camp of the Egyptians and the camp of Israel, and it was a cloud and darkness to them. But it gave light by night to these so that the one came not near the other all the night. And Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord caused the sea to go back by a strong east wind all that night, and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. Moses showing his mastery over water once again. And the children of Israel went into the midst of the sea upon the dry ground, and the waters were a wall unto them on their right hand and on their left. And the Egyptians pursued and went in after them to the midst of the sea, even all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And it came to pass that in the morning watch, the Lord looked unto the host of Egyptians through the pillar of fire and of the cloud. 
and troubled the host of the Egyptians and took off their chariot wheels that they drave them heavily so that the Egyptians said, let us flee from the face of Israel for the Lord fighteth for them against the Egyptians. And the Lord said unto Moses, stretch out thine hand over the sea that the waters may come again upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. And Moses stretched forth his hand over the sea and the sea returned to his strength when the morning appeared and the Egyptians fled against it. And the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea and the waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen and all the host of Pharaoh that came into the sea after them. There remained not so much as one of them. But the children of Israel walked upon dry land in the midst of the sea. And the waters were a wall unto them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day out of the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead upon the seashore. And Israel saw that great work which the Lord did upon the Egyptians and the Moses and the people feared the Lord and believed the Lord and his servant Moses. And that, gentlemen, brings us to the end of Exodus 14. We'll pick up with the crossing of the Red Sea yesterday. Ah, thank you all who are listening and watching. And thanks once again to the Daily Wire Plus production team and that whole enterprise for making this unlikely assemblage of whatever we are that are assembled <laughs> possible. Yeah, pick yeah. a noun, Peterson. Thank you all very much. You have to go forth in every day. You have your bread, but you're not going to have your store for the whole year or just keep working to fill your stores up, to fill your bank accounts. That's not another way. That's another kind of tyranny. Mm -hmm. And so, so the limitation of it is also a protection. I would say that the, right. to the degree yeah. that the left has a moral claim against capitalism, to the degree that that's the case. The sin was not hitting the rock. The sin was that he said, you rebels, watch how Aaron and I bring forth right. water. Oh, great, Dennis. Not great, God. Great. So it sounds to me like you've got the makings of an argument for the existence of God from the problem of evil. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's, that, well, that's also why I think that that's why we've been gazing on the figure of the crucifixion for 2,000 years.